Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> this is our original 2019 show on the first Matrix. I went back through to see if I had to update anything, but as it turns out, it's one of our best. I really like this one, and it provides a key refresher for the three sequels that we're going to cover over the next three weeks. Turns out the only thing I had to remove in the end was Marilyn Manson. So, enjoy. The Matrix. Have you ever had a dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? What is happening to me? The answer is out there, Neo. It's the question that drives us. What is the Matrix? The Matrix is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? They're watching you, Neo. Human beings are a disease. You are a cancer of this planet. And we are the cure. Get me the hell out of here! Welcome to the real world. Buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy. Because Kansas is going bye-bye. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. With me is Sharon Shaw, my wife and co-host. Hello. This episode has a lot of written material to it because we have spent more than a decade promising we're going to do The Matrix, never doing The Matrix, and trying to work out how to cover this film properly in our own inimitable way and I wanted to get the right thing said but coming up will also be a lot of freeform discussion in amidst all of the essay material but just there's a lot of monologue in this one just to prepare you folks let's give us some context and some history this film was released on the 31st of March 1999 in the USA and the 11th of June in the UK so this is the 20th anniversary the world was quite different at the time. We had just got the Phantom Menace. We were at the tail end of the Clinton administration with a new Labour government headed up by fresh young Prime Minister Tony Blair. Boris Yeltsin was the president of Russia. We were anticipating the millennium with no small amount of fear for the technological terrors it could hold as the Y2K bug loomed. For the younger among us, Y2K was best defined as a problem with computers whereby they would notice as New Year rolled around that there was a double zero at the end of 2000. And in their limited understanding of linear time, they would interpret this to mean that it was 1900, and they were many decades off from being invented. Thus presented with this contradiction, they would shut down like an unruly robot in Star Trek. I wish I was making this up. We spent billions trying to prepare computers to understand that it wasn't the end of the world. And, as of New Year's Day, no global shutdown occurred. 
What that did, however, was highlight our utter dependence on technology, which made this movie absolutely cutting edge in terms of flipping the script on our fears. Not that we were dependent on machines to live, but that the machines were dependent on us. As a film itself, this is a combination of many 20th century works, both in literature and film. Books including Simulacra and Simulation by Jean Baudrillard, William Gibson's Neuromancer, and any number of dystopian fiction novels. Films included Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, James Cameron's two Terminator films, and Momuro Oshii's Ghost in the Shell. There's also similarities with John Carpenter's They Live and Alex Proyas's Dark City, along with the Grant Morrison comic series The Invisibles. Now, while The Matrix is a cocktail of influences, what the first film manages to do is present those blended concepts and design choices in a way that makes it very distinctive and memorable as a world. That's why it feels cheap to me to say that the Wachowski simply ripped off these prior works. All aside from Sophia Stewart's early 80s screenplay, The Third Eye, which sadly has not been made into anything, leaving its creator mostly remembered only for being justifiably upset that her ideas were stolen and attempting legal action. This was way back in the early 80s. She presented a treatment of the uh, script and never got any callbacks. And then suddenly the Terminator came out and she was like, eh. Okay, it's remarkably similar to my whole kind of, you know, machines dominate the future story, but, and, you know, this one exceptional person is the person who frees the human race from the machines, but I'll allow it. And then many years later, The Matrix comes out and she's like, that's really close to my story. So, like I said, she attempted legal action and to date has not been paid off. One thing is absolutely certain the way that scripts get passed around in Hollywood copycattery happens all the goddamn time. Whole scripts, whole films get greenlit because they resemble something which gets greenlit and one studio thinks, oh, that's going to be popular, we'd better greenlight our thing. If you examine the works of the Wachowskis before and after 1999, the idea as to their placement in the landscape of film becomes more and more hazy. They began by directing noirish lesbian thriller Bound in 1996, which was well-received critically with 88% freshness on Rotten Tomatoes. It cost $6 million and it made $7 million. I recommend people check this one down. It's good. But four years after The Matrix came out, its two epic but resoundingly disappointing sequels, which we will cover in future episodes of this show, emerged. This, this was 2003, the year of The Matrix. Do you remember that one? <laughs> They were some of the highest-grossing R-rated movies of all time, bringing in $1.1 billion combined, and that is excluding the multimedia that came out alongside. But the 88% freshness rating of the original dropped to 73% for film 2, and then 36% for film 3. As the, She's got her mouth open like that's a surprise. I didn't expect it to be that low. I would have called that. As the course of the story and characters further alienated critics and audiences alike from the subject matter. By the way, you butting in on me doing all the talking is good. Like, like it, it makes it not just me talking. It allows me to sort of like pause for a moment, bat stuff off I thought you. thought you were going to say it's going to make this three hours long. Don't do it. It'll still make it three hours long, <laughs> but it'll make it more interesting. Okay. <laughs> Plenty of people, whenever you mention the Matrix sequels, go, what Matrix sequels? And it's like, oh, that's, that's a good joke. But no, seriously. They exist. They exist, and we're going to cover them. And in some ways, they're actually better than this first film. More on that later, folks. 
the astonishingly designed, eye-popping to look at Speed Racer in 2008, directed by the Wachowskis, cost $120 million, made $93 million and hit 40% freshness. Though it definitely has its tenacious fans. We saw it again recently, and a lot of the shine has worn off for us for various reasons, including the presence of Jill Stein backing Susan Sarandon and her on-screen son, Emile Hirsch, who savagely choked a female film executive unconscious in a Utah nightclub in 2015, which makes it a little bit hard to root for him to win at the crayon-coloured car racings. Don't expect a show on that anytime soon, folks, nor a show on one of our previously favourite coming-of-age teen comedies, The Girl Next Door. If Deadpool was all about how sweet its lead hero TJ Miller was, we wouldn't have covered that either in retrospect. The Wachowskis made Cloud Atlas in 2012. It cost $146 million and it made $130 million, netted 66% freshness, and was one of the films we tried to cover for a recent commission. But watching it for a second time, as well as reading the accompanying book by David Mitchell, infuriated me to the point where we just had to drop it. That's my fault, not Sharon's. But don't expect us to ever do that show, folks. We couldn't, even if you paid us. Although, Sharon, you quite like Cloud Atlas, don't you? Uh, I like the book. I The film's okay. The book drove me nuts. The film was better than the book for me, because I didn't have to endure reading through the text. But, uh, okay. I like the structure. Hated the structure of the book. Of the book. That, so. Could not stand it. In 2015, Jupiter Ascending cost $200 million, same as Titanic. Made $184 million back, 27% freshness. Again with its fans who love this goofy space opera full of moon vampires, air skating dog boys and bee people. We saw it again the other day and I was irritated by most of it, though some elements like Eddie Redmayne's croaky and occasionally screeching performance did tickle me. Again, don't expect a podcast. Sounds like baby Voldemort. Yes. Well, honestly, it's more likely than Cloud Atlas, but still don't expect a podcast, folks. Their TV show Sense8, once again, the fans who love it really love it. Cancelled after two seasons. They also produced V for Vendetta, which was moderately profitable, costing $54 million and making 132 with a 73% freshness. $54 million to 132 that's very profitable, surely. But you've got to make twice as much and then a lot more. That's how it works in Hollywood. And Ninja Assassin, which cost $40 million, made $61 million and pulled in a pathetic 25% freshness. Though the Wachowskis only produced Ninja Assassin. James McTeague directed it. Same as James McTeague was the one who directed V for Vendetta. This, by the way, Ninja Assassin is always the film I hold up as an example of why Rotten Tomatoes is far from being a one-to-one barometer of your personal enjoyment of a film. Ninja Assassin is a ton of fun and the slickest ninja movie ever yet made. Here is the pattern. In terms of freshness, for the Wachowskis, it goes 88 with Bound, 88 with The Matrix, then 73, 36, 40, 66, and 27. As their projects go on, the critics seem to tire of them. They are not critical darlings, and as always, that metric is a flawed system. It doesn't reflect the overall quality of the films, though it can be used as a loose barometer, a loose one, of critical success. In terms of box office, they have broken even with Bound, made astonishing bank with the Matrix trilogy, and then lost money ever since. They are not a safe bet for studios who want to turn 116 million into 855 million, like Venom. The people who love their work appreciate the craziness 
the guts to do something that won't appeal to the middle, the unconventional, wrapped in the trappings of blockbusters. They are oddballs and outcasts, and that is quite a flag to fly, even if nobody quite knows what to do with you. Compare this with my usual whipping boy, Tim Burton, who has made a career out of feeding tragicomic outcasts, all too often played by Johnny Depp, to family audiences in a safe, profitable fashion that rarely challenges or changes, save for when the director takes the source novel and pulps them, inserting his own creations in place of the author's to create an alternate Burton-verse take that still seems to bring in the punters. Do expect an episode on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and we have already recorded one on Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. It was scorching. I also anticipate my Dumbo Quick review to be a little ranty, though I do like Big Fish a lot. The Wachowskis will never be Tim Burton, and I'm glad that's not the path they took. It is highly unlikely that in 1999 a major studio would greenlight the epic sci-fi project of two trans women. But the way things shook out, there's so much packed into this movie about transitioning away from the body you were born into and into the one you feel inside that it serves as, among many other things, a trans parable from two sisters waiting to become their comfortable selves. It's difficult enough just getting women or people of colour into the director's chair when a project has serious money behind it. That Lana and Lily are two trans women who have been able to tell such massive stories is significant to a great many who never get to see something even remotely approaching their story told. Whatever they make in future, I doubt they will ever match 1999's The Matrix in terms of both cultural impact and sheer craft. And I would posit that this is largely down to the phenomenal team they had to work with here and the sharpness of focus when it came to laying out their vision. Much like Peter Jackson when not directing Lord of the Rings and not working with those specific key figures of Weta Workshop, he ranges in effectiveness as a filmmaker. Here was the Wachowski's masterpiece, as well as that of everyone else involved. Yeah, just to add a little bit to what you said about reading the film as a trans parable that reading is not one that we're going to make here because it's not our reading to make however not that it's not our reading just that we're not the experts on exactly exactly Uh, but what I will say is there's a writer called Eleanor Lockhart who back in 2013 wrote some essays on a trans reading of The Matrix this was I believe shortly after Lana came out Mm And uh, Dr. Lockhart is trans herself, so is obviously far more qualified to examine it from that angle than we are. I would strongly recommend that if you're interested in that reading, then go to her website. I'll give Alex the link to put in the show notes. So if you want to look at that in depth, it will link to that. She's a bootleg girl on Twitter as well. And an observation that Lily Wachowski has made herself on people re-examining the films through a lens of transness since the sisters have come out. She says, This is a cool thing because it's an excellent reminder that art is never static, and while the ideas of identity and transformation are critical components in our work, the bedrock that all ideas rest upon is love. That ties in with some of my conclusions later. Good, good, good. Okay, glad I'm barking up the right tree there.
The opening sequence alone is a finely honed machine in terms of laying out both mystery and world building, as well as the shared avatars of the agents and the human freedom fighters defying them, embodied here by Agent Brown and Trinity, respectively. They aren't characterizing themselves so much as they're characterizing their opposing sides, their archetypes. So let's look at the sequence and break it down. We begin with the Warner logo, veiled in green, indicating that we are being immersed in the simulated computer world, lo-fi yet vast. And you got that Don Davis score there saying, this is going to be big. Then we get the lines of familiar yet different code. They look like numbers or letters or kanji, but we can't read some of them, indicating wherever we are, It is somewhere alien or one step removed from our personal reality. Trinity talks unseen with Cypher on the phone about someone named Neo. Cypher thinks that they will kill him, establishing he does not believe in what Morpheus says. Trinity disagrees. It's hard to place when and where this is. It looks like an American city, maybe Chicago, probably not New York, but the decor of the buildings is old and analog and has a late 1940s, early 1950s aesthetic, a time when post-war America was about to become very successful and started telling its people things were going to be looking up and if they did as they were told, they could reap the benefits, same as everybody else. But we just saw early 80s black and green computer screens with brightly glowing green text. In fact, we went through those ones and zeros. Are we in a computer? Is this, is this Tron? It's anachronistic. No time for that. The agents turn up outside the hotel and Smith ominously chides the officer in charge, telling him the standard police he sent in to apprehend one little girl are already dead, making us immediately respect Trinity's abilities before we even see it happening. Plus, we establish a hierarchy of metropolitan blue-collar authority and government white-collar authority using the trope only just lampooned by the 1997 film Men in Black, we are about to get very scared of these MIBs. Mm-hmm, indeed. And that transition between the opening frames into the world and what's actually happening, they double up on tunnels mm. and you're, you're constantly going through things. And that does imply you've got layers on layers on layers of reality here. It reminds me of Shape of Water in terms of the actual, the way we're, we're seeing the world. And, and the uh, the wardrobe mistress very specifically was going for a sort of an early FBI, CIA look to the agents. It was not like new modern tech. It, it, it needed to be slightly dated looking. And I love this tone, to be honest with you, when films are made where everything's ever so slightly off. They date less. They date less for a start, but also it creates that sense of surreality that tells you you've got to be looking below the surface on this. Mm. Don't just read this as what's immediately in front of you. Next moment, Trinity gets arrested, or they try to. Then she resists arrest using blindingly fast martial arts and some rigged bullet time to indicate her powers aren't natural. She's a superhero, swathed in the black garb of an edgy 90s clubber, and she wears sunglasses at night. Morpheus on the phone tells her that there are agents nearby. She gets flustered and prepares to escape. We have to ask if she's so tough that she could take down three cops in 10 seconds. What could she be so scared of? What is an agent? 
Whatever this besuited thing is, it outstrips the police and leaps tall buildings after her, which the cop declares is impossible, meaning this obviously isn't commonplace within whatever world this is that we're in. They are pushing the limits. Trinity makes herself into a spear in the air and with practiced mechanical grace dives through a window with accompanying Don Davis' score, which has been building to this cold Superman fanfare. So like that... That bit. It's Superman. And she points both guns fearfully up the stairs at the smashed aperture as all the music and sound pulls away and we just hear this like quiet creaking and you get that tension and apprehension. Very much afraid that the agent will come through. This makes it even more clear that no matter how awesome she seems to be, they are more powerful and she probably wouldn't survive a close encounter. She runs to the phone booth and is forced to gamble on getting to the receiver before the agent-driven garbage truck obliterates it. This is very unusual behavior for government agents. Brutal, hard, unfeeling, destructive. That, that is a macrocosm of how government agents are uh, portrayed, but it's like, this is really over the top. They don't usually try and destroy you with trucks as soon as they meet you. Usually they at least attempt to arrest you first. Everybody is still wearing sunglasses at night, and Trinity is gone. So on our first viewing, we must simply employ cause and effect and figure that the phone got her out of this horrible predicament, but also that they are rare enough that she would take this suicide run of a risk. That occurred to me watching it this time, by the way. If The Matrix was now, we are fucked because there are no hard lines. <laughs> We're at the point now where so many people don't even have landlines in their house. I mm. mean, we have one, but we don't use it. That kind of still plays into the idea that the, the uh, Matrix feels like these landlines are being found and cut and removed by agents in the system. There was a, uh, a lengthy period when uh, a lot of fans of The Matrix were convinced, is The Matrix real? Are they telling us in coded messages that The Matrix is real by telling us literally about The Matrix? If they were, guys, then the system, the machine, probably wouldn't let them say it in such explicit, candid detail. It wouldn't be the huge hit that it actually is. We're not party to this very specific knowledge. But there's still a lot of people, very smart philosophical people who actually do believe we might be living in a simulation and there's evidence for it. Maybe not precisely like the Matrix, but a simulation. Here's a thought though. Until we get some conclusive evidence in that direction, how about, how about we carry on behaving as if we are in reality, and the sun is going to come up tomorrow. <laughs> so this is the first seven minutes of the film, and it tells us enough of what we need to know about the anti-hero protagonists, their antagonistic pursuers, the abilities and limits of both, the dark green washed world they all inhabit, that the phones are magic, and that there's disagreement in the ranks on all sides, because the agents are arguing with the cops, mm. and Cypher's arguing with Trinity about Morpheus. This it is a phenomenal opening oh, yeah. of visual storytelling. Yeah, it also tells us when the action comes back, it's going to be spectacular and it's going to defy physics. It's rather important for high concept films to show this kind of thing in the first few minutes as both a sample and a promise. If it's not your kind of thing, you can leave. If it is, then stick around. And they also seed several things which are going to become recurring themes throughout the film. Yeah. So you've got the phone being destroyed either just as somebody gets out or just after somebody gets out. Mm -hmm. You've got the, the get up, Trinity, get up 
that gets Get repeated up. throughout the film. Neo says it to Morpheus later on, and then I think Trinity says it to him at the at the very end as well. It's that the using the force of your will to keep you going. That, by the way, is uh, why I uh, put the uh, the chase scene at the beginning of Let Them Go. It was like, well, I could just suddenly have Wendigos at the end of Act 3 here, but it'll seem to come out of nowhere if you started reading it. I have to make this statement at the beginning. There's these things in this book. Just like, a lot of people might have turned on it if it was like from dusk till dawn, and it was like, no vampires, no vampires, oh my god, vampires! Which is a great turn, but generally audiences don't like it when you suddenly switch genre halfway through. So this opening sequence lays down enough statements and leaves enough unspoken to create big questions in our heads. All the key ones that will be answered by the film include who is Morpheus, who is Neo, what might be more powerful than an agent, and of course the main one, what is the Matrix? Again, the creation of the atmosphere with all of this visual storytelling is brilliant. The the influences that it's drawing on, it uses them so well to contribute to the overall feeling. So the, the one that stands out for me is the Terminator influences. But you've got these these tiny little things like the truck pulling up with the steam coming off it, uh, the agents all looking and moving like T-1000s. That gives you that feeling of there is artificial intelligence in this world and it's not overly friendly. Oh yeah, it's very threatening. Okay, the next thing I'm going to do is give a shout-out to the cinematographer Bill Pope. Now, as I mentioned on the uh, Crazy Rich Asians episode, you can't make a film without all of these incredibly skilled people. And the whole worship of directors and actors thing is a way of marginalising these craftspeople. And we don't talk enough about the visual stuff because we tend to discuss script and characterization. And I'm going to just... Just test the water and get out of that a little bit more. Just talk about composition more. Talk about the visual design. You're going to have to picture it in your heads more, folks, because this is a non-visual medium. But that's what's held us back so far in the past, and I can at least talk about it because in a lot of cases, you guys will know this stuff very well. I think one of the reasons that directors and actors tend to be lauded a lot more than the people who put the nuts and bolts into making a film is because marketing. Because they are the people who are trained and talented in communicating with people who don't understand how films are made. Yeah. The techies uh, tend to be a little bit more introverted and sort of, you know, yeah, well, this is how this thing works. I just want to get on with my job. Mm. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so Bill Pope uh, also did the, it was the DP for Bound. Uh, the two Matrix sequels, Spider-Man two and three, but not Spider-Man one. This is Raimi Spider-Man. Yeah, uh, that which might account for why the cinematography in Spider-Man two feels a lot more, uh, a lot less surreal and comic-y and a lot more sort of grounded, even within a Spider-Man film. The cinematographer for the original two thousand two Spider-Man was Don Burgess, who uh, was a DP on uh, Forrest Gump. Contact Castaway works with Zemeckis a lot. And he's beginning with pre-production on The Witches. Looking forward to that. Bill Pope, meanwhile, was DP on Spider-Man 3. And one of the things that's still really excellent about Spider-Man 3 is the photography. 
He also did the cinematography for Scott Pilgrim and Baby Driver, which suggests he's going to be working a lot with um, Edgar Wright in the future. Both of those are very creative in terms of cinematography. Absolutely. Uh, the uh, uh, John Favreau Jungle Book, which suggests, by the way, folks, that whole, well, it's just all CGI. Well, it had to be photographed by a, a, a DP of, of this calibre. Mm. Uh, I, just as an aside to that, the Hollywood Reporter did its usual brutally honest Oscar voter mm-hmm. pieces again yesterday, mm-hmm. and one of them was talking about how it's getting harder and harder for them to vote on things like uh, production design and cinematography and visual effects because the layman, which unless they're specialists in those fields, is what they are, can't, can't tell. tell which belongs in which category. <laughs> in part, this is what gives big visual effects extravaganzas a disadvantage when it comes to Oscars because they look at it and they go well that does look absolutely amazing but I don't know how so I don't know how to vote for it Other Bill Pope films include the recent Alita Battle Angel which does look fantastic and The Kid Who Would Be King which is going to be one of this year's Nobody Bloody Saw It and Yet It Was Great films. Kind of like Lego Movie 2 Um, But I'm just going to describe to you eight shots that most of you fans of The Matrix will just have burned into your brain. Number one, Thomas Anderson takes shelter from the pouring rain under a bridge at night on a wide street. Just this amazing noirish image there. It's like there's a waterfall coming over the side. And uh, just Anderson's over on the far right as the car comes in. Anderson sits opposite Morpheus in faded red leather chairs. That's both inside the hotel room and inside the, uh, the construct. Those red chairs are wildly iconic. You could now just sit two people on them in a darkened greenish room and everyone would know exactly what you were doing. The red and blue pills reflected in the mirrors of Morpheus's eyes. Number four, pretty much every frame of the minute that Neo and Trinity are on the roof before they get to the helicopter, from Neo's high kicks through to dodge this, with that now classic bullet time fall. Every frame of that setup is, it's dynamic and it's edited together in a way that's just like blood rushing, heart pumping the whole way through. Much love to editor Zach Steinberg. Number five, directly above us flies a helicopter gunship. Shell casings cascade towards us. Number six, the world of glass behind Trinity ripples outward and explodes as her shoulder hits the window in front of us. Number seven, Neo and Smith dive through the air towards one another, firing wildly, clasping together in the middle as the camera circles around them, culminating in, you're empty, so are you, as Smith eyeballs us, the audience, through his broken sunglasses. And number eight, Neo stands with his hand up in front of oncoming bullets, simply saying, no. Now, most of those are big effect shots, uh, and you'll remember them more because they get used in promotion more. But almost every frame of this film is expertly decided upon. We, we recently saw the, um, the 4K version, and the original print of The Matrix, when it went to DVD, was given a, gr- a really darkish green color. And uh, this was, um, they'd noticed in the filming that there was a green uh, tinge to the uh, Matrix world and a uh, blue tinge to the real world. 
And they leaned into this, and the Wachowskis decided they were going to go real green and real blue for the sequels. So they gave it, on in the home formats, a green tinge. But it made everything look really sickly. It was unnatural, and it was done in a kind of a clumsy, analogue way back in the late 90s. So Neo's skin looks yellowish all the time, because effectively when you put a lot of green into the picture, it drains the red out. So there's kind of a sort of a sludgy, brownish, swampy olive hue to everything. The 4K version, which a lot of you won't have seen, looks phenomenal. The faces have now got color and blood in them. Even within the Matrix, people seem much more real. It seems less shallow as well. There's a lot more depth to it. You get a lot more true blacks rather than charcoals. It is an absolutely amazing transfer overseen by Bill Pope himself. And while the 4K version was fantastic, we actually preferred the remastered Blu-ray, which no one will ever talk about because it's just the second edition of the uh, the Blu-ray, which most of you will already have. And no one's going to go, I don't even know if it's on sale on its own in this country because who would buy something that everyone already owns? You'd want to buy the 4K one. The 4K one had a lot of really murky moments. There were There were two or three when... Neo first meets Morpheus in the hotel uh, when they're waiting in the dark for the squiddies. And there was one more. That... Uh, Trinity running across the rooftops. Yes, where it's so dark you can't really see features and, and it's, it's, it's quite murky. I think overall the 4K one looks better moment to moment, but the Blu-ray takes the, the original print and just polishes it up and makes it much sharper and brighter and... It still has that sense of depth mm. that the the, uh, the 4K one has, but without the flatness. Yeah, and honestly, once you've seen that version of the Matrix, going back will be quite difficult. So I've I've seen people say I don't I don't see any reason to get a 4K. Whenever I've uh, looked at 4K discs, they just seem murky and flat and colourless compared with regular stuff. And ultimately, currently 1080p discs on Blu-ray, when boosted with high dynamic range by something like an Xbox One, look as good as, if not in some cases, like the Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire Blu-ray looks better than the 4K disc because it just brings out all those features, all those colours. The first Lego movie in 4K has an almost orange tinge to the clearly supposed to be yellow plastic. And you get some disparity amid sci-fi blockbusters because the film could be shot in 4K, but the effects would be rendered in 2K, so they have this weird pop-out. Mad Max Fury Road looks better in Blu-ray as a result. The flames don't just look pasted on. They remain part of a deep screen experience. Dramas look way better than we'd ever remember, because it just feels like you're there, and you've only ever seen them on sort of a drab DVD in the yeah, past. Or even a VHS, yeah. if they're really old. In the case of The Matrix... Especially if you're able to uh, compare the discs one after the other. Say, watch it all in 4K, then go back to the original 2009 Blu-ray. And then if you've got it, go back all the way to the 1999 DVD and just check out the difference between them. It's, it's quite extraordinary. This one got 5 out of 5 from Blu-ray.com and rightly so. Another reason why uh, the cinematography is so fantastic and why the action sequences work so well is the storyboarding. I cannot say enough about how having it storyboarded beforehand really makes this film visually targeted, directed. It seems like the Wachowskis were like, we want it to look like this. Then they set it up and it looked like that. So having the... 
uh, you know, just rough pencil sketches. And this this happened for the Lord of the Rings as well. They pretty much got it shot for shot in pencil before they even started filming. Honestly, I think, and bearing in mind that this is the way that animated films are made for the most part, when you're doing a live action movie from a director or directors who are visionaries, who are incredibly creative and very visual about what they do, you need the team to be able to communicate what they want on film Mm. as closely as possible. And honestly, storyboards are essential to that as far as I can see. I will tell you what for. If I ever get to direct Let Them Go, which is something I would really like to do, I will have a Bible of pre-prepared, storyboarded shots that I have envisioned that this is how it will go. In my head... When I was writing it, when I was recording it, I knew exactly how I would be pulling the camera in, what I would be focusing on. It's very important for people who can visualise this stuff to be able to explain it in that thousand words that each picture gives you. Absolutely, and not to mention the fact that it reduces the amount of decision-making and composition that you have to do on the fly immensely and gives you a structure to work with that very clearly tells everyone what's needed. I've seen uh, directors uh, sat um, directing while watch with a monitor near them so that they can see what's going on in front of them with the actors and then they can also glance down at the monitor. In a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff, the Wachowskis were sat with their backs to, say, Lawrence Fishburne and Keanu Reeves fighting, staring at the monitor like, OK, so this thing's going on, but I am all about how it looks on screen that it has to fit with these, uh, you know, pre-visualized storyboards. And uh, they got in a uh, professional comic artist named Steve Scroce, who uh, did uh, X-Man comics, and uh, they got him to, like, beef up what, you know, these storyboards to make them look like a a comic, like a a manga that would thus translate to the screen. And it, it made perfect sense to give it to someone who can do visually dynamic art. Absolutely. And it makes perfect sense that directors, especially modern directors, would direct the screen rather than directing as if it were a play, because that's not what your audience is watching. Yeah. We've already mentioned the Don Davis score. Don Davis never really went anywhere huge in the uh, cinema world. I wonder why. His stuff feels partway between synth and orchestral, and... There are times when the, the Matrix is, is just so distinctive. Like, you, you could hear that music now and you'd know it was the Matrix straight away. Uh, whereas if you took a lot of Danny Elfman stuff or um, John Ottman... You'll know it's Danny Elfman and you could put odds on it being a Tim Burton, but you, you might not necessarily know, it's Danny know which film. Yeah. Anybody? It was Hellboy 2. But the, the Don Davis Matrix score is very distinctive, as are the, you know, and he, he kept it consistent throughout the, uh, the two sequels as well. He, he went on to do the Jurassic Park 3 score, which is not coincidentally one of my least favorite scores ever. It's that one where he just rushes as fast as he can through the John Williams Jurassic uh, Park theme. It's horrible. I, I, I really don't like that. But this right here is his magnum opus. This and uh, the, the trilogy. It's, it's very operatic. There's less of a sense of it being made of 
you know, movements. It's not like Howard Shaw's on Lord of the Rings, but there's very much a sense of place there. And it is a very, like I say, distinct to evoke the Matrix world. And there's this pile driver going through it the whole time, to tsh, 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 which uh, kind of feels like um, uh, Brad Fidel's Terminator 2, which has got a lot of that... Um, that like both of them feel like they are a, f- uh, a munitions factory that after hours has sprung to life and started composing music with its machines. I think specifically as well, that hydraulic pile driver sound, there is something very specific about hydraulic machinery that once it's going, you can turn it off, but it doesn't stop immediately. Whatever you do to end this thing that you have to end, it's going to take its time to slow down. And most of the time when he ends, it ends in a kind of a... A note of tension. He doesn't let up on that. There isn't that resounding, and then we're done. It's always this, and something's still going to happen. Listen out for it the next time you're watching. Very atmospheric. Yeah. The soundtrack was full of all these club songs. If you go to the original motion picture soundtrack, uh, the one that began with Rock is Dead, it's one of those ones where they mix everything up so it's higgledy-piggledy, so they put the popular stuff at the front, and they also have music inspired by. So uh, um, they've got Bad Blood by Ministry, which is not in the film. They've got My Own Summer, and then in parentheses, Shove It by the Deftones, also not in the film. Ultrasonic Sound by Hive, also not in the film. Look to your orb for the warning. Radio edit mix, doesn't matter what mix it is, by Monster Magnet, not in the bloody film. Do Hast by Ramstein, brilliant song, not in the bloody film. And the one song that isn't on the soundtrack that was actually in the film, Dissolved Girl by Massive Attack. Check that one out on YouTube. It's really... It's that one that Neo's listening to when he wakes up at the beginning. It's this really atmospheric kind of, you know, late night staring at a computer screen, things starting to swim in your head kind of feel to it. And the fact that you're hearing it through headphones as well means that it sounds just slightly removed, mm. slightly distorted. And each and every piece of music, um, you know, you've got the uh, two at the club, you've got Dragula followed by Minefields, they're perfectly placed. I don't use the P word, but there's so many instances in this film where it honestly is warranted. They're ideally placed, maybe, to just sort of bring you into that, you know, that Rob Zombie followed by The Prodigy and you're in a 90s club immediately, specifically a goth metal club, like with these posers that turn up to pick up Nia. There's um, uh, fan theories that go, ooh, that was actually Morpheus and his cronies all in disguise. Sort of holds water. I suppose, but that they are pawns makes Hmm. more sense to me. Yeah. But the the suggestion is that um, Neo actually knows these people and has known them for quite a while. They're his asshole friends, hence the white rabbit that he hadn't noticed on Du Jour before. Mm, Although he doesn't trust them particularly at the beginning. He doesn't want to open the door. I suppose they're more acquaintances. By the way. Well, they might actually be even plants by the Oracle, the fact that the white rabbit turns. Maybe he deals those uh, discs out of strange days to them. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. That's one of my notes here. What the hell kind of program is he paying $2,000 for? It's the Mezcal program. The only way to fly. It's something. I mean, and I, I am son of Malkovich. I know nothing about tech. If, if we have any hackers listening, 
And you know what somebody would pay $2,000 for. In 1999 bucks. In 1999, yeah. But uh, another highlight of uh, the uh, soundtrack is Club to Death, the uh, Kureya Mino mix by Rob Duggan, who I've liked since seeing The Matrix. This is one of those songs that no one ever really put on and then they put it in the Matrix and thus interpretive dance was changed for a good three years as the amount of little and then we go ding 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 ding. I was in one of those. I was in one of those theatre studies folks. You gotta do interpretive dance at some point and it was 1999 so everyone was doing it. As I recall I was playing a painted devil and it was a thing about the creation of life. I wasn't massively fond of the whole paint. Thing. See when I, I was like, can I be less like Darth Maul, more like Al Pacino in The Devil's Advocate? And they went, they won't know you're the devil. I'll put some horns on. Uh, when I was at the interpretive dance stage of my drama GCSE, uh, we I was at the back uh, because of my weak this ankles. Was, this was well before <laughs> the Matrix, so we ended up with the Chariots of Fire soundtrack. Ooh, I think I won that one. Yeah, maybe just yeah. I like Chariots of Fire, great one, but ultimately, unless you're running in slow motion. Everything's going to look weird when you uh, dance well, the, with that. the particular track that we used was one of the less running ones. Yeah. It's very significant that it ends on Wake Up by Rage Against the Machine. Obviously, with Wake Up being a huge theme of the movie, and it's like that was a lock from the get-go with the Wachowskis. But also Raging Against the Machine being a huge Bingo, theme that's the, the thing. Movie. Rage Against the Machine were huge in the 90s, just in terms of that they were, you know, like middle finger up at authority. Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me! And you got Zach De La Roca's incredible voice where he's powering and thundering, and if you listen to that, you would be like an angry young man, but not in a spiteful way. They're all, they're all behind the idea of revolutions and oppressed people standing up for themselves. It's not about, you know, let's cause civil disobedience to hurt people. It's like, no, the freedoms of people all around the world are being uh, threatened. Rage Against the Machine was a great band in the 90s. And of course you got the amazing guitar of uh, Tom Morello. And then it's worth noting that as of 2001, airplay for this kind of music was cut because of 9-11, they forced Rage Against the Machine, System of a Down, another fantastic band, off the radio. You were no longer allowed to be angry and stand against oppressive governments in your music. This is one of my theories as to why we ended up where we did, to be honest, because this kind of angry phase is entirely normal and entirely necessary in the transition from childhood to adult Mm -hmm. and you need to be able to cut that fury out but the problem is the scalpel went in and then got broken off and there was nothing to then tell people where do we go from here we've we've raged against the machine we've started to break it down what do we put in its place It's important to note, by the way, that this wasn't forever. By 2007, Minutes to Midnight by Linkin Park was out, and that one is a very anti-Bush album. Mm. It's anti-war, it's anti-Bush. A Thousand Sons that came afterwards is about terror of nuclear war. So it came back, but there was that period when it was just clamped down on by the machine. It was no longer allowed to rage against it. 
which kind of defeats the object of raging against the machine. You're supposed to rage against what you're not allowed to rage against. Absolutely. Oh, we're not allowed. Okay, fine. What are you rebelling against? I don't know. What am I okay to rebel against? <laughs> you're, okay, you're allowed to rebel against these four things. Putting raisins in things that didn't have raisins in them before. So the visual design and this slew of original imagery, it's very significant that The Matrix, when it came out, looked a little bit like some other things that we'd seen. Again, like a little bit like Dark City, a little bit like The Crow. Again, two Alex Proyas films. Blade. Blade. You better wake up. The world you live in is just a sugar-coated topic. There is another world beneath it. The real world. That happened a year beforehand, and, and at that most definitely was not the first time that we'd been told there's more shit going on under the surface. But The Matrix did it in this whoa kind of way. Again, if you've seen They Live, you'll be like, ah, I see how they've, they've really elaborated on that. In and now you know why everybody wears sunglasses at night. Bingo. <laughs> but... It was very distinctive at the time. If you turned up to a uh, uh, costume party dressed like The Matrix, everybody would know. And then afterwards, we'll talk about this when we talk about the sequels, this one movie had a hell of a long influence to it. This one's got a tail, folks. Mm. But that almost, the, the fact that it was trendy shortchanges the visual design and the amount of stuff that we got to see that we just hadn't seen before. Just the, the, you know, the crazy kind of French Mobius style um, like setup of, of keeping people in pods and all of those cables and wires sticking out of them. It's horrific, but it's visually fascinating. Just the color combinations of those, you know, even before you start looking at the specificity of these disgusting Cronenberg style man and machine merged kind of HR Giga-ish as well. Mm, absolutely. <clears throat> and it's worth bearing in mind as well. For anybody who wasn't there, you will find it difficult to get your head around exactly how neon the 90s were. Oh, yeah. Like, the colours that we were flooded in prior to this coming out and, and Blade and the few that kind of led into it, you did not have black PVC covering everything. It was, it was... You did if you were a goth and you were rebelling and you were going to a goth club. Exactly. But for the most part, the mainstream colours that you got thrown at you all the time were bright orange, bright blue, bright pink, bright yellow. Yeah. Especially in the early 90s, late 80s, there was a hangover from that period where if your laces were white, oh my lord, you got to turn them into neon, two different neon colours. I was just you about to say. A yellow <laughs> pair and hot pink. Yes, absolutely. Are you not wearing a fanny pack? You're going to need a hot pink fanny pack. And a global hypercolour t-shirt. Hot pink fanny pack. <laughs> Is our... Pussy Riot cover band. Oh my god. But I mean, just like Neo on the uh, slab uh, after they've rescued him with the claw and they're um, getting his muscles working again. He's got all of those, you know, loads of little needles in him and uh, it would seem to be horrific, but there's an odd peacefulness about it. Just the the imagery of like Trinity just running up and over and doing her cartwheels and stuff like that. That just, that wasn't stuff you saw in Western cinema. It was stuff you saw in Western cinema a lot afterwards, but not really so much before. There is obviously, the, the, the Terminator thing cannot be underestimated. The, like, the, sh the shittiness of the Nebuchadnezzar and them wearing all these raggedy um, clothes, that's basically the, uh, you know, the flashbacks that Kyle Reese has to the future in uh, Terminator 1. It's a bit less militant, but it's similar. That kind of, we just scraped together what we could from what we could salvage. Mm -hmm. 
I will say this, and this might sound a bit bold and I might be overstating, but no Matrix, no Crouching Tiger, and no Matrix sequels, no Kill Bill. Okay. Crouching Tiger was already in production when the Matrix... But it wouldn't have been as big as it was. Bingo, yeah. They were, uh, it was a case of, like, we've got Yen Wu Ping who did the choreography for this film. Precisely. Oh, look, check it out. He's now done this. Yeah. While Crouching Tiger was a big money earner, it was not huge like The Matrix, but the general getting behind it was helped by a, a sudden interest in martial arts, which had previously been um, considered to be just what, you know, chop-socky Hong Kong action films were about. And this legitimised that to a degree. And you got some amazing follow-ups to Crouching Tiger that I don't think would have got the mainstream release that they got without yeah. the success of that one. House of Flying Daggers and Hero, mm. in particular. Yeah. Um, also, you know, you get your other um, films like um, Kung Fu Hustle. That's yes. Yang Wuping as well. Oh, Stephen Chow. We should probably do that one. That's a great one. Want him on a Marvel movie, by the way. Yeah, be good. Get him on, uh, get him directing. <gasps> Namor. But yeah, if you think about like martial arts movies in the 90s, it was dominated by Van Damme and Steven Seagal, which is, in the eyes of people who are into legitimate cinema, a bit crap. So The Matrix raised the level of that, the same as uh, Spider-Man, the Sam Raimi film, raised the profile, and X-Men, which was just coming around the corner, raised the profile of superhero movies to being more than, yeah. Also raised the profile of black leather. <laughs> See also The Matrix. <laughs> yeah. That's the downside. In the 90s, lots of neon. Post-99, everything was black PVC. I honestly wonder what their uniforms looked like. Because the, the X-Men took a long time in, in pre-production. Whether they were going to be wearing bright colours and then the summer of 1999 happened and they were like, get rid of those bright colours. What do you want, yellow spandex? Put them in black biker leathers. But the thing is, the costumes in The Matrix were not restrictive. They allowed the freedom of movement that these actors required to be able to perform these incredible stunts themselves rather than handing it over to a stuntman. Also, they're in The Matrix. Tight black PVC is not a barrier to them because mm. they can move however the hell they want to. Conversely, in Brian Singer's X-Men from 2000, James Marsden could not step over a small wall outside the Statue of Liberty because his big leather biker leathers would not allow him any freedom of movement of his legs. Under those circumstances, you change costumes. production design of Owen Patterson and the art design of Hugh Baitup and Michelle Magani. You cannot underestimate how just making these sets and making this world was so dependent on the kinds of craftsmen and women and, and designers who could actually bring this stuff into a, a reality that a very you know, sceptical crowd could buy into. And this is the thing, going back to what I said about creating a surreal world where everything is slightly off. 
it has to look real. It has to look real and then you unpick it very slightly. Somebody uh, said um, on, on the, the Matrix Revisited documentary that going up to collect their award was just like being in the Matrix. It was like not real at all. And I'm like, no, no, no. You're shortchanging the entire production. Being in the Matrix is like reality, but everything's slightly off. It's not that it's not real. It just feels strange, uncanny, if you will. Absolutely. Oppressive in that regard. And you're right about the set design. The... the aesthetic that they've got going with those buildings. I don't even know what it is about them, whether it was just the amount of old buildings that I spent my time in in the 80s that it's just stuck with me, but the buildings in this, the buildings in 101 Dalmatians of all things, mm -hmm. give me that same vibe. And this was an Australian shoot, so they, uh, you know, it was uh, budget was sixty-three million dollars. That, by today's standards, is pissing nothing. Ooh! If you adjusted that. Yeah, let's just check that. It's still less than Venom. Sixty-three million back in nineteen ninety-nine is now one hundred and seven million, and Venom cost one hundred and sixteen million. But Venom made eight hundred and fifty-five million, as I will remind everybody all the time, forever. Uh, and uh, The Matrix made 463 million. But just that. Again, about the same. So yeah, that, the, the Matrix was the venom of its day. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie, that's oh, depressing. <laughs> oh dear. Venom show coming up, folks, by the way. Now, in terms of the plot of the film, the fact that it's perpetually 1999 within The Matrix is for a damn good reason. Sharon, do you want to speculate on that one? For a start, if they go past that, then the machines have to keep constantly updating everything. Yep. And they also have to explain what's happened in the interim years. And the machines can't create new stuff. Mm -hmm. They are not humans. They don't have that power of invention. All they seem to be able to do is replicate what has already been within the context of this one film. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm the not sequels saying that challenge that. will never be able to create, and as you say, in the sequels, they do go into uh, exploring what AI is actually mm. capable of doing. Morpheus says, the world at the beginning of the 21st century, we, we were united in rejoicing as we gave birth to AI. So effectively, the Matrix decided to stop people just before that point, 1999. Yeah. Mm. Because otherwise, as well, they'd then have to explain what happened to all the robots. Mm. <laughs> that makes it kind of a period piece, and it's actually still really on point, because this 1999 was before everyone started getting hold of the internet. The internet was out around. You got it in libraries. Some people were lucky enough to have it in their own homes. You got that horrible <laughs> dial-up sound. But it wasn't fantastic. It was mainly just chat rooms, some geo-cities, uh, Encarta. But uh, it, it wasn't really what computers would become. And it's very important that the machines kept us there because it's, it also kind of kept us apart. We weren't really united at that point, that we were... <laughs> <laughs> you could argue for the fact, and I wish that uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet had done this and made it all about, you know, all of this stuff brings us together, but it also keeps us apart. That would have been a sobering story to tell mm. 
And instead, it was like, hey, you know what? You know how you can make the monies? Go on the YouTubes, fall about, and set yourself on fire. That's brilliant. It's a really good way to earn likes, and likes mean money. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a dark analog world, and I don't know quite what digital trickery they pulled, whereby every new year it was, oh, hey, you know what? Uh, uh, it's 1999. Well done. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Everybody reaching for a millennium that never comes. Yeah. I like the fact that they don't explain too much because sometimes if, if you start to explain, you'll hit upon reasons why actually that wouldn't work either and no, that wouldn't work either because you'd have to then explain that too. So, for example, if every December they jump straight through to January the somethingth again so that they could avoid the uh, new year or everyone just gets their memory erased and goes back through again, Yeah, I mean, it would also, be chaos. There's also the question of how much time has actually elapsed mm. since this human battery field setup was yeah. put into place. The way... Morpheus talks about it, and we certainly never get a, a year figure, yeah. but the way Morpheus talks about it, I get the impression that it is maybe two generations, mm. not much more than that. This is one of those worlds that works brilliantly within its own premise, within the confines of a two-hour, 16-minute movie. The more stuff is written about it, the more movies get added to it, the worse it gets. Mm. Bear this one in mind, folks, when you're considering rebooting this thing, because people fans really love lore and if you start if you have a whole like novel that explains how people this happened to people you get the fans memorizing it and regular cinema goers like i don't care that's not to say by the way that expanded universes create oppressive fandoms but oppressive fandoms that cling to the expanded universes are something that hurts the fandom in general. Mm. Well, this is the problem. The more you expand the universe and the more you put detail into that universe, the more people become so involved in it and so invested in it mm. that they start to feel like they have to defend it with their lives. Yeah. One of the things I liked doing a lot in the year 2000 was going on to thematrix.com and just seeing, like, going through the message boards and seeing people's ideas for... The Matrix 2 and The Matrix 3, and a lot of them were uh, kind of Patton Oswalt's, uh, you know, and then Thanos turns up. <laughs> I remember very specifically, like, Neo um, goes into Red Square in Moscow, and he hears a familiar voice, and a ponytailed agent steps out and goes, It is good to see you again, Tovarish. That's the end of Blade. <laughs> and then Agent Smith's head appears giant in the air. And I was like, that would be pretty cool. But there, there was a lot of, uh, of stuff. And I'm, I'm going to imagine that a lot of the fanfic ended up kind of inadvertently being a lot of the whole, this is what Zion's like. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, where we can go from here. Again, more of that in the sequel talk when we get to it. But it was kind of comforting, like, you know, seeing other Matrix fans talking about this you know, vast world that they wanted to see continued. And I dearly wanted to see more. And it was one of those careful-what-you-wish-for situations. <laughs> Two bits in this film that are just head-slappingly, like, why did you put this in? And specifically, why did you put this in in such a way? It's the, um, you know, we gave birth to AI. And Neo says, AI, you mean artificial intelligence? And it's like... Yeah. At which point, Morpheus really ought to look at him over his sunglasses and go, are you serious right now? You're, yes, you're a computer, computer programmer. 
And there was a lot, a lot of speculation on these uh, forums where it's like, why wouldn't Neo what, uh, know what AI was? Why would he maybe only have heard it on the deep web? And it's like the, machi the machines kept the whole idea of artificial intelligence on the down low so humans wouldn't attempt to create it whilst they were within the matrix and get too far in. So there's that, and then there's the, uh, you know, we're readying the EMP, and then Neo goes, EMP? Electromagnetic pulse, and it's... It explains, of, and, and it lays down a rather important prop to be used later. But it does so as though one would to a child. And again, people were asking, why doesn't Neo know what EMP is? He's a computer programmer. And there was a lot of answers there on the lines of, do you think the machines are going to allow them to know what an EMP is? The one thing that devastates machinery within the Matrix? No okay, way. here's how it works, though. Do they know what nuclear bombs are? Because if they do, they know what EMP is. Well, we dropped the nuclear bomb and then nothing happened at all. It sort of exploded and we probably shouldn't use these. Again, this, like, if, it, if everyone works in a city, are they working on nuclear bombs? Again, there's a lot of questions regarding the Matrix itself. And yeah. some physics books. Yeah. Uh, honestly, it feels like uh, the uh, machines would be constantly writing and rewriting and going, I can't believe we haven't... Imagine having to start rewriting Wikipedia from scratch. <laughs> Okay. Jeremy, why is this textbook blank after the first chapter? I'm sorry, I was in a rush. What should we put for dog? Not a cat. Ah. <laughs> 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 uh, so, uh, frankly, it's amazing the computers managed to keep the order they did. Either way, the, these two are sort of like goofy moments that you're like, oh, EMP. AI, huh? And it doesn't help the fact that, that Neo was played by Keanu Reeves, who people at the time were still very much associating with Bill and Ted mm. or uh, Johnny Utah in, in Point Break. Mm. Yes. And they scoffed at the idea that he could be a, a, a cold fusion physicist in Chain Reaction. And, uh, you know, they accepted him as Jack Traven in Speed, but uh, it was that, you know, when Dennis Hopper goes, do not attempt to grow a brain, it kind of let us go, well, he's not the smartest of uh, heroes. But, I mean, Jack's cunning enough. He works shit out that he needs to. Absolutely. He's just not Sherlock Holmes. Okay, so Trinity, as a heroine in 2019, how does she come off? Because she's the major female representation in this film. There's... Um, that Switch has a, a, a deliberate androgyny to her. In fact, most of Morpheus's crew do. Mm -hmm. um, and she's really the only other female who talks apart from the Oracle and a couple of the Oracle's other... Um, yeah, not the Oracle's major domo. Later, the Oracle is a manifestation of the machine anyway. Mm. But let's focus on this. But looking at Trinity, I think it's worth bearing in mind that she is a very different symbol in 1999 as she is now in 2019, mm -hmm. primarily because in 1999 she was one of the first action heroines that got to be really kick-ass, really capable and unquestioningly capable as well. And yes, I know everybody will go, oh, but Sarah Connor, oh, but Ripley. Yes, I know. But that's Sarah not... Connor was questioned by a lot of people. No one ever says, Trinity, you can't do this. Yeah. Unless they're debating her philosophically. Absolutely. But I think... And Ripley, her character was that men didn't take her seriously. In the later Alien films, yeah. All of them. Even the first one? 
Yeah. Why don't you guys just fuck off? Okay. And then in the uh, at the beginning of the second one, Madam, did IQs just drop while I was away? I already said it was not of that planet. Continue. Nobody really questions Trinity. They wouldn't dare. No, absolutely <laughs> not. She would snap their arms like a fucking twig. Um, <laughs> but the reason that that becomes a little bit difficult to uh, process in 2019 is that she started a trend that then became the thing. Mm. All female characters who were being portrayed as strong and capable had to be really strong and capable. Strong and capable to the point where you sat there going, why isn't the heroine doing all the hard stuff instead of the hero? To the point where it was... A running gag in the Lego uh, movie too. Absolutely, absolutely. And in uh, Wreck-It Ralph um, Breaks the Internet. Also, Black Widow owes her lineage, although obviously she's been this in the comic. Mm. Her on-screen representation was very Trinity. A sexier, like, deliberately softer and more kind of cover girlish look even if she was in the uh, uh, the shield uniform in Iron Man 2 uh, and, and a more feminine version of uh, uh, Trinity but definitely like do not fuck with this woman she Absolutely. will kick your ass why and I mean I think one thing just just to, to touch on sort of the femininity of Trinity and how that's presented like you already said Morpheus's crew everybody is quite androgynous and Trinity is maybe the slightly more feminine portrayal she she has more emphasis on the, in the real world yeah uh, oh definitely in the real world but but then again you look at how everybody is in the real world they're all wearing schlubby trousers mm. and worn through jumpers anyway nobody is Neo here are your schlubby trousers in, in terms of clothing nobody has anything particularly great in the real yeah. world so uh, but how her digital self-image is presented that's the part that's her choice Mm -hmm. so that's the part that reflects on her character and she does have the one or two classically feminine symbols like clothing that emphasizes her breasts a bit more like i think she's the only person who wears a skirt just little things that do give a presentation of what the standard consideration of femininity would be. But I don't think that she exactly lacks it. She does kind of redefine it for this world. Because it's worth bearing in mind that in terms of what traditional femininity is supposed to be, and my God, the number of people who think that they're the authority in defining what this is, uh, but classically it does all tend to be geared towards demonstrating reproductive qualities and reproductive abilities. And that is irrelevant in this world. I have breasts for babies. Yeah. But human beings aren't born here. They're grown. They are grown. You don't need to be showing anybody what your ability to carry children is is like. The, uh, the understanding of sex and gender from the previous world is no longer really required. Everybody gets to design it themselves. It's one of the things that's so great about this world and about the way it's presented. That residual self-image, yes, there's sort of force of habit that will make you look a certain way, but you can then add to that and present yourself however you choose to be. I mean, if you think about it, Neo isn't exactly the poster boy for traditional masculinity either. Mm. He's very skinny. He's very drawn. He has big, um, pretty eyes. Exactly. There's, there's this kind of zone of androgyny where everybody seems to meet in the middle and have characteristics that are individual to them. Mm. 
but not specifically locked into what gender people perceive them to be. And he has Neo does have a vulnerability throughout the film that uh, really he only seems invulnerable when he is totally at peace with himself and at that point, he's not also massively macho. Mm, absolutely. And he is, only, again, kind of androgynous. Yeah, the only engagements with uh, sort of old-fashioned sexual activity that we really see are Cypher, who is watching in code, it's worth noting, so we, the audience, don't actually see what he sees. Blonde, brunette, redhead. Exactly. Now, I, I thought that was porn. You said that you think he's just watching girls in The Matrix. Oh, that's so much better. I was going to say, that is creepier. <laughs> um, and, um, and Mouse with his um, constant refining of the woman in the red dress. Oh, I made a woman! <laughs> God damn you, we hate movies. Every pervert sounds the same in my head now. Indeed. <laughs> Absolutely, but, the, but also that woman in the red dress, by the way, she is the only starkly traditional mm. uh, feminine character. She is very 40s. Yeah. She also never speaks. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have her own agency. Indeed. Okay, the problem with Morpheus... I recently watched a video from a channel whose author I respect. I won't name the channel or the subject matter, but it outlined a recurring, unsettling, toxic pattern in not only the entertainment that I personally dislike for its many troubling aspects, but in entertainment I have no personal feelings about, and some stuff I straight up love. Stuff that feels so overwhelmingly positive that to lump it in with the rest of that lot, playing clip after clip between statements, seems to defy context and balance. His point was simply, this bad thing is everywhere and we need to move forwards, but aside from the unlikely prospect of writers and especially comedians just all agreeing to knock it off at once, there was no solution presented for solving this within the entertainment world. I ultimately dislike that brand of production. Overall, Despite being a clear whistleblow, it's exhausting and dispiriting to watch. It preaches to the converted, it leaves everyone feeling uncomfortable. Everyone with a conscience unsure of what they can watch without somehow perpetuating the negative pattern. So bear in mind, when I talk about Morpheus here, I am not saying it's not okay to love The Matrix, or Morpheus, or Lawrence Fishburne, or Kung Fu, or Pince-Nez sunglasses, or pills of any colour. This isn't thing bad, it's element of thing questionable. It was questionable 20 years ago, and it definitely is now. Morpheus deserves investigation as an adult rather than as a teenager. Because Lawrence Fishburne's Morpheus, as depicted in the 1999 Matrix film, is a cult leader and a little bit of a religious fanatic. The Matrix is a system, Neo. That system is our enemy. When you're inside, you look around, what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still a part of that system, and that makes them our enemy. You have to understand, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inert, so hopelessly dependent on the system, that they will fight to protect it. Were you listening to me, Neo? Or were you looking at the woman in the red dress? 
He takes confused people, the young are much easier to influence, and he talks to them in a charismatic way about the whole world being not quite right, and based on a simulation, he tells them about a mythical supreme being whom we all owe a debt to and who will hopefully return someday. He says he doesn't have all the answers, but in a way that suggests that if you follow him, you'll probably learn them anyway. And in the case of the crew of the Nebuchadnezzar, he convinces them to unplug from the simulated world and come to live in the real world on his cold blue hovercraft, wearing moth-eaten sweaters and eating frog jizz. It's noteworthy that only Cypher calls him on this shit. It's not to his face either, and Cypher is a weaselly villain who only cares about himself. Morpheus teaches his new recruits kung fu, encourages them to dress like him, like a humorless, cool, stylish robot programmed to go to clubs and stand coolly at the periphery while everyone else dances. You get sunglasses and a gun, and everybody adopts a kind of personalised uniform based on the Morpheus template. Nobody in the Matrix was wearing dungarees and a beer hat. They all had to be of a certain mindset. Obviously, this is so the film could retain its singular style, but that style proposes questions. And these recruits then conduct missions with Morpheus and his other acolytes, missions designed to recruit others to his cause, which is now your cause, with the ultimate goal being to destroy the system that holds everyone in bondage. It's a little pyramid-y. A little bit. But there's virtue in there. It's impossible to argue that. The humans are being kept as batteries. They are being fed a simulation to give their brains something to do while they sleep and feed the machines. I won't argue the patchy science of how much energy their bodies can put out, nor the possibility of just growing them in tanks without higher brain functions and simply leeching living long pigs. I will just accept the given world of the Matrix for this investigation. Humans are in invisible chains that they are unaware of, and Morpheus wants to break those chains. We are being fed our own liquefied ancestors just like motherfucking Soylent Green, and we have zero choice in the matter. Morpheus wants to open the door and allow us to step through, and that's admirable. And it only becomes a little sketchy when he advocates decisive violence as a means of doing so. If you are not one of us, you are one of them. That means that anyone we haven't unplugged is potentially an agent. This makes him Magneto, a man who is okay with murder because the ends justify the means to free his people. And in this fictional world, we have no Charles Xavier to present a counterpoint. We don't even get one in the two sequels. There's no one who opposes Morpheus apart from the grumpy old commander. As with the human hatred of mutants, which the movies really didn't make enough of a big deal about because it makes people look terrible, we do eventually get to see the dire threat that forms the reason why Morpheus is okay with killing some people. The SWAT team who pursue them have no qualms about killing an armed child. Very specifically, Mouse is shot dead first, in notably a really upsetting way that seems like it could have been prevented had they been more prepared. But after that, a cop morphs into an agent and violently captures Morpheus, a man we already know is ten badasses at once. And again, it is impossible to argue in favour of a SWAT team with nightsticks beating down a black man. That imagery was exemplary of abuse of power in the 90s. The central conflict point of this movie is humans in the Matrix will fight to protect it but also that any one of them can metamorphose into an agent and then become an invincible death machine. 
Killing them when they are mere mortals is seen as self-defense, but more than that, it is a preventative measure to stop them becoming unkillable enemies. However, when the lobby shootout happens, it isn't shot from a point of view of the grim work Neo and Trinity must perform in order to rescue their master. Sanctioned murder of a dozen men, which they must harden themselves to achieve and feel the effects of before, during and after. No, the eye here is on how fucking cool they look while they're killing. tear through first entirely unprepared security guards packing comedically tiny pistols up against their hacked lots of guns then they jump rings around a very similar SWAT team to the one that killed Mouse I cannot dispute the danger these Matrix men represent. They would kill Neo and Trinity for effectively being domestic terrorists. The agents would use their bodies to accomplish those murders even faster. What disturbs me is the tone and the eye of that scene. Neo met Morpheus only a short time ago, and when he did, he was questioning everything. Morpheus gave him knowledge, told him it was the truth, gave him a purpose, which was also Morpheus's purpose... Morpheus trained him and armed him and focused Neo's frustrations. And here, Neo steps into a government building and murders many guards with utter assurance of moral superiority. At the climax of the Schwarzenegger film Commando, John Matrix blows the shit out of a private army of screaming goons. It's a hilarious bloody denouement to a basic and enjoyable action movie. Fifteen years after The Matrix, in John Wick, Reeves himself takes on dozens of henchmen for the Russian Mafia. Hard, terrible, murderous men who all decided to go and work for these monsters. This is Wick tearing down a rotten institution. But it's one that he's deeply familiar with. He has seen that black heart, he's walked away from it, and now his puppy is dead. He has nothing left but to balance that equation. Do away with the rot. Neo was a software programmer just days ago. He doesn't know nearly enough about what he's doing, and the film never highlights his lack of perspective, because it deals in the absolute truths that Morpheus is peddling. Commando doesn't ask you, the viewer, the deeper questions, and John Wick is himself as a character a dark spot amid total blackness. This is why it's a lot less appropriate for this mind-expanding movie to culminate in what is basically Commando with slow-motion acrobatics. These are real live pod people who were assigned the job of guarding a government building. We can assume they had about as much choice as Thomas Anderson assigned to be a programmer by the machines. Killing them for self-protection should be kind of an unavoidable tragedy. Eight years before this, James Cameron making Terminator 2 understood that principle with young John Connor ordering the T-101 not to kill, which leads him to wound and disable the police who are just doing their jobs in trying to stop the Connors, who are ostensibly, again, domestic terrorists with a vendetta against one particular tech firm. 
Instead, spy brake by the propeller heads tells you this scene is cool. The slow motion does even more so, and how badass Neo and Trinity are makes you, as a young boy in 1999, want to be that cool. I came out of the cinema feeling invincible, wanting to bounce off moving cars and fly. It never questions or critiques their actions, and Morpheus ends the movie being absolutely 100% right. He is the one. As a story, that's fine. In a story that confused, angry boys are going to take away and potentially misinterpret wildly, that's not fine. Absolute truths are dangerous. There's a very good reason why Neo is fighting demons and vampires in the sequel, why they never shoot up a building of federal employees again, why they switch out the black trench coat of school shooters and gun nuts for an elegant Armani wool dress coat in the sequels. The Columbine shooting happened 20 days after the original Matrix was released in America, and it was carried out by two boys dressed like this. The Matrix didn't make them do that, but it did present this violence as the coolest thing ever, and then did not question that action in a way that would give crazed young men pause for thought and possible re-evaluation of human life. Fuck, I'm seeing Thanos Was Right videos pop up in my feed now, 20 years later. Gun violence has always been part of American history, but in the two decades since The Matrix came out, fanatics with guns who were just absolutely certain that their take on society was righteous have been in the public eye every single week, each new killing feeding the next. In short, the element of the Matrix that dated so quickly that they had to completely rewrite the ethos for the sequels was that the people within the pods can be killed without remorse. That in the long run it is a necessary evil if victory is to be achieved. If the Wachowskis made it today, you know for sure this would not be the case. And notably, the first season finale of Sense8 references the rescue of Morpheus in a way that criticizes their prior bullet-spewing antics and does things differently. Red Pill Ruination One of the very worst things to have come from this film is the real-world scenario that the Wachowskis did not intend, and to some extent, it poisons the well of the Matrix series. To the point where, if it ever rebooted, this issue needs to be addressed within the fiction. Red pills in real life are angry men who reach the very natural THIS WORLD IS ALL BULLSHIT phase of being a teenager and got stuck. They see themselves as awakened and everybody else is asleep. They're all sheeple, conformist assholes, tools of the system. By and large, red pills reject the idea of being kind to women, so this state of being awakened has been linked with men's rights activism, the mode of thought that perceives masculinity and men in general as being under threat from feminism. And yet super-dominant. If yet. it's super-dominant, how can it possibly be under threat? As a reminder, folks, whenever we say toxic masculinity, we're not saying masculinity equals toxic, we're saying the elements of masculinity that are toxic element of thing bad, if you will. Mm, absolutely. And this... We certainly aren't saying men are toxic. The red pill movement is kind of where you see that personified. There are a few red pills who are able to speak in a relatively calm fashion about this movement and how it's about not buying into society and it's about being your own man in a non-aggressive fashion. You know, you can be a businessman, an entrepreneur, and be awakened to the way that the world wants you to be and you can be in a different way. 
though even these men seem to have a distaste for women. I heard like there was this one guy who was talking about it in his car, and he seemed relatively not insane, but then he kept saying sugar and spice and all that bullshit, and it's like, okay, so women are not sugar and spice, they're evil and conniving, and duplicitous, and malevolent, and nasty. And that dignity of these men is somewhat let down by output like top ten things only red pill men understand about women from the esteemed video lecturer Turd Flinging Monkey. Wish I was making it up. Not. Again, it's not a one-to-one match, but the incel movement intersects here too. Involuntary celibacy, which means they want to have sex but women won't let them, so they take out their fury on women for robbing them of this right to their bodies. As I said on the Lego Movie 2 show, these men are not well. These are irrational, extreme beliefs which distance them from empathy and seeing the lives, decisions and rights of others as equally important. In their eyes, their red pill status puts them above everyone else. It's that sense of false superiority powered nearly always by the fear that they are in fact insufficient from which some of the very worst of humanity's dark side stems. Nazism, fascism, imperialism, slavery. These are belief systems and political systems which suggest that some people are worthier than others and some do not even qualify as people. And they're nearly always begun by men who positioned themselves at the top of that heap. Chillingly, a form of... I wish I was making this up. I only found out about it a few months ago. A form of seeing the world known as NPC theory has arisen in recent years. This mode of thought, which stems logically from the idea that the Awoken are special, urges men to see the whole world not as a stage with all the men and women merely players, but as a video game in which only they are the real players. Everybody else is an NPC, non-player character. This is literally saying other people don't really exist. They're not real. So you can do and say anything you want to them because it doesn't matter. This is language peddled by men who have barely comprehended the vastness of existence, seen their insignificance and shaped their resultant despair to match what they're familiar with. That this came from the Matrix, from the minds of two trans women, and is used to push away and attempt to control women as the enemy, is a travesty, is face-palmingly ironic, and also, it's worth noting, the most basic-ass, short-sighted, self-centered, clumsy, stupid, and just plain wrong interpretation of what taking the red pill achieves. Conspiracy theories used to be about speaking truth to power. This is me and my old man, no country for old men face. Conspiracy theories used to be about speaking truth to power. There was always a portion of tinfoil hat wearing loons, but now, as we hit the 2020s, conspiracy theorists have had decades of discussion on the internet to grow more and more insular, more untrusting, more angry, and in the case of far too many prominent voices, ludicrously, performatively crazy. Their frontmen are barking fakes like Alex Jones, playing up to furious right-wingers in order to sell merchandise. And down the chain you have lengthy screeds of paranoid delusion saturated with memes and false equivalencies. What was originally a mechanism for being inquiring and questioning to our rulers is now the gibberish of those who seem to not want to be governed at all. As an exercise in futility, by the way, folks, try to find one stable person making a compelling argument for NPC theory. You'll be a long while, and it will get very depressing in the doing. Morpheus stating, 
you are either with us or you are against us, is a horrifying prelude to the divided political extremes that the future would bring. The far right will no longer work with the left, seeing them as worse than the enemy. And the left have to perform the ridiculous balancing act of trying to oppose this extremism and attempting to meet in the middle without becoming centrist on a scale that actually puts them more in line with 1990s right-wingers. Even I began my book series in the early 2000s, shortly after the corrupt heads of Fox News declared George Bush Jr. the winner of the 2000 presidential election before Florida's votes had been counted. I was furious. I wrote about a world controlled by a room full of smoking old men who puppeteered everything straight out of the X-Files. But as I got older, I realized that it's a weirdly comforting notion to write that. It's somehow better to imagine that at least someone knows what they're doing at the top, that we're being steered in some capacity, even if we rail against it. My book series eventually became about the struggle of those at the top absolutely not being able to exact full control, as they played the delicate balance in a nation that did not want to be governed anymore. I made those in fragile positions of power who want us to work together the heroes, the opposite of all the fascistic government dystopian fiction. Because none of that stuff paid off. We were warned by author after 20th century sci-fi author of the dangers, and it still happened. If anything, we leaned into it as a species, and now we're living in a dystopia. Only it's moving slowly, rather than straight to the exaggerated extremes. We have time to experience it like a slow-mo car crash, and feel like we have to act. And it's that realization that feels like the true awakening for me. Not that everything in the world is bullshit, but that we define our world individually and together. Let's go back to the good things about The Matrix, because I really did not want to spend that much time on red pills, but obviously that stemmed from an ideology that was misinterpreted from this film. So the Oracle, maybe one of my favourite scenes of all time. It's certainly my favourite scene of the film. I love her. The fact that she reminds me of my maternal grandmother is entirely beside the point. Mm -hmm. Gloria Foster was a treasure, and the third film is most definitely lacking for her absence. How did you know? Oh, what's really going to bake your noodle later on is, would you still have broken it if I hadn't said anything? She elevates the film. There's a uh, uh, they, they very deliberately sort of set her up to be this kind of mystic who uh, you know would be would live on top of a mountain and would be incredibly wise and unknowing. Like, it's, it's kind of like um, the ancient one in Doctor Strange. Yeah. And then she turns out to be your grandma. Mm. I mean, she does fall a little bit into that trope of this wise, all-knowing black lady. Mm. It's one of the more positive tropes. Yeah. That is regarding race representation. But it is tropey. It is. And you kind of have to see most of what's going on in The Matrix as fairly tropey and broad stroke symbolism Oh, it's anyway. very broad, yeah. Yeah. The script is very strong throughout the film and she handles it with a very easy flow that it never feels like anything that she says is forced. It all feels like something she was going to say herself. And... Uh, she has a particular way of savouring the words as they come out. She's like, she's in one scene and mm. she owns this film. Absolutely. You know what that means? 
That's Latin. Means know thyself. I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. Being the one is just like being in love. No one can tell you you're in love. You just know it. Through and through. Balls to bones. And I made a point to saying to uh, Lyra earlier today, she doesn't tell Neo, you're not the one. She says, you already know what I'm going to say. And Neo says, I'm not the one. And at that exact point, he isn't the one because he doesn't believe he's the one. So her response is simply, sorry. Do you know what really bakes my noodle? Mm-hmm. If he'd said, I am the one, what would her response have been then? Because honestly, at that point, I think if he's confident enough to say that he is the one, given how little he knows at this stage, that's kind of an alert that he's not. Hmm. In fact, it might even be that his saying, I'm not the one, is what tells her he is. I'm supposed to say, interesting. The only true wisdom (laughs) is is in knowing knowing that that we know know nothing. nothing. That's us, dude! There's a lot of philosophy bandied around in this film, but they're very they're very precise in that the main one is know thyself, determining your own value. The second and third ones get bogged down with discussion about systems. And I think that's possibly why people just began to tire of them. There is definitely a lot of philosophy going around here, but it's uh, most of it seems to be about getting the cogs moving and then there's this big central, you know, Uh, you determine whether you are the one aspect to it. So you've got Morpheus saying, what is real? And that's another huge aspect of it, which never really gets solved. It never gets answered because it's all speculative. It's all Red King related. Mm. Real is what we interpret as real. You know, which is kind of good, because if you're dealing with philosophy in the abstract, it allows you to apply that to real life. If you're dealing with the mechanics of the story in a very specific way, which is expressed as philosophy, then all you're really doing is using fancy words to explain law. So we'll talk about this during the sequels, but there are many theories that the real world is in fact another simulation. And if that's taken in a very literal sense, it seems to be kind of missing the point. I think the fact that the the original one that Morpheus talks about was able to self-actualize, was able to wake himself up from the Matrix, is kind of an important message that gets lost in the raw, that part of this is about finding those truths out for yourself rather than being preached them by someone else. I mean, ideally, the getting out of the Matrix is something that would happen through self-development and therapeutic support, and you'd be able to very gradually take those plugs out one at a time and have them heal and exercise your muscles in a way that that a baby would do after birth and grow and develop in a a more natural way. Mm. And... The fact that everything has to be done 
in in part because it's a story, you can't let everything drag out for quite that long. But the fact that everything does get done in this right, we have to find you and wake you up and unplug you kind of way, it's it's like the path to the dark side. It's quicker, it's easier, and it's more seductive. More <laughs> uh, the element of choice is one that they hold back on because the second one is all about choice though there's an element of choosing to be the one in this yes and then there's also individuality versus the collective where um neo gets told you have to fall into line become you know become a proper working cog in this machine by his uh, boss who is analogous to agent smith and uh, he sort of, you know, hangs his head and goes, yes, so I'll go off and be a good cog. And it's noteworthy, by the way, that he goes back to his cubicle and just sits there. His computer's not even on. He doesn't seem to be working at all. He's just thinking. Again, they never really solve that whole individual versus the collective aspect of it because Neo becomes an individual amongst a team of individuals who are all very uniform. <laughs> If it makes sense. They, they all are. agree on roughly the same thing. Yeah, this is where the Lego movie really diverges, actually. The, the whole point of the Master Builders is that they can't work together as a team because yeah. they're all so different. The Lego movie is an evolution of the Matrix. And while it is the Matrix for kids, it's technically a little more complex. Mm-hmm. And certainly with the on, Lego on, movie, in too. In some elements, absolutely. They certainly stick the landing of their sequel better. Yes. Yeah. There's also the religious reading that's uh, worth pointing out. This thing is heavy with religious overtones and that just persists throughout as uh, Neo uh, maintains the Christ-like positioning that they've uh, given to him with you've got Cypher being Judas and you've got Trinity being Mary Magdalene death and rebirth I suppose their last supper is that disgusting tasty wheat (laughs) and you know I remember uh, on these forums again people were like oh the first thing that Cypher says to uh, Neo when they actually have a proper conversation is whoa Neo you scared the bejesus out of me. Mind blown. <laughs> Which is kind of ironic that the whole religion is the opiate of the masses thing mm. rather suggests that it's the matrix that's the religious overtone, mm. or that ought to be the religious overtone. Honestly, I don't remember a single person on a forum uh, back in the uh, uh, turn of the century being told, you aren't enough of a matrix fan, you're not the right kind of matrix fan, get off, no girls. That the presence of Trinity actually brought in a lot of girls to that uh, forum, as mm. I recall, and I think they were just treated as totally equal. Well, that was that I was could kind just be misremembering point. it, but that, uh, yeah, that is kind of the point of the character that the the fact of her being a woman is not that it's not relevant, but it's it's not something that they need to make special accommodations for. Yeah. The fact that it's a chosen one narrative now. <laughs> feels dated with the uh, you know with the Anakin storyline that was just starting as well the whole you know we believe he's the chosen one of the force which like that these two launched at practically the same time mm. I mean this kind of turned that on its head in that he chooses to become the chosen one and that kind of after that went with the Lego movie doing their send up of the whole chosen one narrative uh, especially since uh, Wildstyle is a Trinity analogue and like she's clearly more than competent enough to be the chosen one herself. Arbed on um, Community last night when he was doing his Jesus movie described it as post-postmodern. Mm. And The Matrix is postmodern. 
The Lego Movie and its sequel are post-postmodern, and I think if you go beyond that, everything gets crammed up its own ass anyway. So I think we're about at the stage where things are about as meta as it's gonna get, and if it gets too meta, it's just gonna be pretentious nonsense. There is a force at work inside my body which I must unlock. Will you teach me? Of course I will. You are the child of the prophecy. Really? No! Prophecy. You jackass. So I'm not saying they will never be post-post-post-modern, but if a lot of things are post-post-post-modern, they might just circle right back around to... We were just doing it straight up pre-modern. <laughs> we're doing a classic story. Um, the kid who would be king, a lot of that is just straight up earnest Arthur story. There's a little bit of messing around with it, a few little... It's it's like nods to post-modern, but it actually feels a little bit old because they aren't having to cock a snook at these tropes. Mm. The problem in the backslide of this is the whole red pillars believe that they're the most important person. Not only do they believe that they're awake, but they also have bought into a hell of a lot of you're the most special person in the world narratives Absolutely. in every fucking uh, video game and every fucking fantasy action. And it's just tedious to watch these boys who care about only themselves and also on some level secretly loathe themselves and worry that they aren't worth anything. Push through this constant chosen one narrative of I'm the most special yeah, of well, the specials. Morpheus's language when he meets Neo is like ground zero for that. It's yeah. all this, you're the one, I've been searching for you all my life, no, the honour is mine. And because... It's creepy as hell yeah, by today's standards. Absolutely. And because they have this deep feeling of inferiority, that's a balm for them. Yeah. You're wonderful. You're what I was looking for all along. Again, if you want to flash back to my Guardians of the Galaxy 2 speech about looking for a mentor, this was obviously really laying it on thick, but I was like, oh, I'd love to meet a Morpheus who could tell me about my incredible abilities to actually... I still wanted to do something significant and good for the world. It wasn't just all about me doing something grand for me, but I wanted a Morpheus, maybe someone who was a bit more um, Gandalfy, as it turned out, mm -hmm. um, at, at the age of 19. Now I certainly want someone, uh, a teacher who is much more flawed, but I have one. So. Did you just call me flawed? Kind of. <laughs> so, I am. <laughs> But, but you suit the student. Well, this is true. There you go. But that's that's part of the point. Morpheus doesn't exactly teach Neo, at least not to begin with. He's validating what he already believes. And it's faith in yourself that you need at that age. And what you were looking for was somebody to come along and tell you which qualities you had that you couldn't identify. Bingo. As you can see, we've had our eye on you for some time now, Mr. Anderson. It seems that you've been living two lives. In one life, you're Thomas A. Anderson, program writer for a respectable software company. You have a social security number, you pay your taxes, and you help your landlady carry out her garbage. The other life is lived in computers, where you go by the hacker alias Neo and are guilty of virtually every computer crime we have a law for. One of these lives has a future, and one of them does not. I'm going to be as forthcoming as I can be, Mr. Anderson. 
You're here because we need your help. Now, Agent Smith, played by Hugo Weaving, this could have been a really crappy role for the wrong kind of actor. He could just have been a sneering bad guy. Hugo Weaving makes this character his own, and he's got this incredible intensity on, on this very quiet, angry, slow burn. There's a, a little, you know, little bit of Agent Smith in Daniel Plainview. In uh, yeah, he, uh, Mark Kermode said he was part Agent Smith in um, There Will Be Blood and part Tony the Tiger. I paid him ten thousand dollars cash in hand. Prosperous little business, three wells producing five thousand dollars a week. Stop crying, you sniveling ass. Stop your nonsense. That land has been had. Nothing you can do about it. It's gone. It's had. If you would just you lose. take this lease, Daniel. Drainage! Drainage, Eli, you boy. But, uh, yeah, Hugo Weaving, as well as being physically imposing and the... The act of getting the actors themselves to do their own martial arts, being able to see this guy really going through the motions, makes Agent Smith a very memorable summation of the Matrix. But he himself is not just a slave to the system. He's got his own idiosyncrasies that it's like, you're kind of going off program with this mm, on that. Absolutely. And that obviously they, they expound upon that in the uh, sequel uh, and then they go off the fucking map in the third one. <laughs> and not in a great way. But uh, yeah, in this first one, he is exactly what we need, this oppressive system and the there's a malevolence to him. Like he doesn't just want to shut down uh, Neo because Neo is an anomaly that needs to be dealt with. He wants to shut down Neo because Neo's pissing him off. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you who else we've seen recently who is made in Smith's own image. Mm -hmm. Someone from The Good Place. I won't spoil it for those of you who haven't seen it, but those of you who have, you probably know who I'm talking about. But he has all of those elements that you can remember of overly strict and humorless teachers, overly strict and humorless bosses, just everyone that, you know, just was too much of a hard ass. And he's also an elaboration on the Terminator. Like, he's the the thing that's coming after you. But uh, as opposed to the Terminator, who is always robotic all the time, or the, the T-1000, who's just got this sort of quiet, never really speaking hunter thing going on, he wants to break your spirit with words and he's definitely going to get his oar in when it comes to uh, um, how he wants to slam you down. Mm. And in the sequels, he gets even further than that. Well, he's a finger of the machines. He is all about control. He gets immensely frustrated when his control methods don't work. I hate this place. This zoo, this prison, this reality, whatever you want to call it, I can't stand it any longer. It's the smell. If there is such a thing, I feel saturated by it. I can taste your stink. Every time I do, I fear that I've somehow been infected by it. It's repulsive. Isn't it? I must get out of here. 
I must get free. And in this mind is the key, my key. Once Zion is destroyed, there is no need for me to be here. Do you understand? I need the codes. I have to get inside Zion. And you have to tell me how. You're going to tell me, or you're going to die. And the Yen Wuping choreography, uh, I've always loved Yen Wuping since I think uh, the first thing I ever saw him do was Fist of Legend, Jet Li on, on top form. And, but he also, uh, I think he directed Iron Monkey, that's fantastic. Donnie Yen on top form. Uh, he did the choreography for House of Flying Daggers, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Hero, Zhang Ziyi on top form. And of course, Kill Bill, one of our favorite films of all time, or at least it was until we found out how Quentin Tarantino endangered the life of Uma Thurman during that car sequence. Uma Thurman on top form. Trying to get um, actors to do martial arts in the 90s, uh, what you're looking at is things like Mortal Kombat. Uh, so you've got actual martial artists... Uh, going up against actual actors and oftentimes there would be an imbalance in the actors talent points allocations so for example in Double Dragon Mark Dacascus great martial artist not fantastic at acting at that stage Scott Wolf not great martial artist also not great at acting at that stage but in The Matrix again this is world-class Western martial arts filmmaking uh, the subway fight, I still don't believe, has been bettered in terms of just a straight-up knockdown brawl that is so much more than just about kicking and punching. The only one I can think of that that's comes close is uh, Bucky versus Cap in The Winter Soldier, where his mask finally comes off at the end. And it Bucky? Who the hell is Bucky? All of the narrative has been leading up to this fight really charges that as opposed to like you were not just here to see a martial artist kick ass we're here to see this conflict play itself out absolutely it's it's the emotional quality of the conflict and the fact that that is carried by the actors who are performing the stunt element of it hmm. and it makes them involving and meaningful and satisfying in a way that Matt Damon punching people in Jason Bourne never did for me. I really like the choreography uh, in especially the second and third Bourne films. I, I really like it. It's it's great to watch, but it just doesn't mm. have that emotional oomph. And it led to the notion that you could get any old uh, actor to look like they were really uh, good at martial arts as long as you kept the edit cuts really, really quick. Yeah. So it's like, I punch him, throw him against a wall, throw him against a table. And because it's like, bang, 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 he must be doing it really fast. Yeah. Our brain tells us this lie. Absolutely. Cue me having to avert my eyes from most of these scenes because yeah. they make me feel sick. The Because the edits are in incredibly quick, It's like you don't have your time for your brain to really become aware of the spatial element of it or, or what people are doing. It simply becomes impact, 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 which is more of a feeling than an art. Whereas in this long takes, you get to see the clusters of movements play themselves out with perfect precision. It is a little bit dancey. You know how I talked about how way back when we started doing these shows, the Darth Maul versus uh, the two Jedi is very kind of, and then I put my blade here and then here and then here. But what this has that the Phantom Menace lacks is that Agent Smith and Neo are fucking kicking the shit out of each other with a real I want to hurt you way about it, which... Packs a punch, gives it an oomph, really makes it a fight scene that dwells with you. 
And obviously the the sparring sequence earlier with uh, Morpheus and Neo is a really excellent way of... It, it's kind of silly, and, and Keanu Reeves with his great big floppy hair is going all over the place in his sort of white karate gear. He looks like he's only just started karate, and yet he's able to do these amazing things. So there is a, a, a slight absurdity about that fight, but it's also very visually dynamic, and it, it's uh, it's got a great energy to it. And the um, music that, that plays throughout it, it gives it that professional edge with a sort of a, a, a 90s clubby vibe mm. also the fact that the other characters are like oh, Neo's fighting Morpheus yeah. Morpheus is fighting Neo they're excited so, so we're we get excited. excited Yeah, with Mouse like going ha ha and it's like target audience <laughs> <laughs> congratulations you're all Mouse <laughs> okay now with everything I've said good and bad about the Matrix uh, and the troubles acknowledged. Let us discuss some of its greatest strengths. And uh, one of the best elements on show here is the structure. It follows the 12 steps or more of Campbell's hero's journey to the letter, giving Neo one, his uncomfortable normality and dual identity. So the ordinary world at the beginning. He is a computer programmer. He's also a hacker. He kind of has to hold down both identities. He's not going to be able to keep that up. By the end, he has to choose one. Uh, number two, his herald in the form of Trinity and his call to the quest from Morpheus via mobile phone. So the call is a literal phone call saying, get up, go outside. There's a, there's a world out there waiting for you. We'll pick you up. And he goes, no way, because number three is the refusal as he decides not to risk heading to the roof. And he looks like a little teenage boy when he's climbing out the window. I'm going to die again with that sort of floppy hair. It just it really makes him seem green and, and wet behind the ears. They do a good job of making Neo from both of these extremes of spindly and kind of uh, wimpy and, and cowardly at the beginning to basically being a god at the end, or at least a demigod. And number four, the meeting with the sage in Morpheus. Uh, number five, the crossing of the literal mirrored threshold and into the real world after he takes the uh, uh, red pill and then everything turns to the mirror and it, it goes down his throat and he is thrust out into the real world. Mm. Just a, a quick aside on that particular scene, the coldness that he mm. feels when the mirror fluid starts to cover him, mm -hmm. it made me think this time, not previously it hasn't, but that sensation when you start to get pins and needly when you're asleep mm -hmm. when you, as your body starts to wake itself up because mm -hmm. it's gone numb that makes sense Yeah. so that's his physical body feeling that coldness number six is his tests and allies so the allies would be Mouse and Switch and Apoc and Tank and Dozer Believe it or not, you piece of shit, you're still gonna burn! I couldn't do the show without <laughs> doing that. I think that's Chris Cavanaugh, Stephen Sadak's favourite quote from this film. Just to add a quick one in before that, by oh, yeah? the way, because I was working off a slightly different list to you. Okay, sure. Uh, the Belly of the Whale, which is after crossing the threshold, then you've got the going down into a cave or something mm -hmm. that involves then coming back out again in the first rebirth. Mm -hmm. And that's... It's the separation from the known world and the willingness to undergo metamorphosis in order to do this journey and this is Neo being born from the pod yeah and Neo's enemies are Smith and Jones and Brown and Cypher, the false friend. And then he has his road of literal trials, including the sparring sequence and the jump and the finding out that any one of these people could become an agent. And it's all, you know, you failed this. He 
almost hit Morpheus, so he almost beat him. Then he failed the jump test and he failed to detect that the agent was right there as he was looking at the woman in the red dress. So he keeps failing repeatedly and yet Morpheus has complete faith in him. Number seven, his meeting with the goddess, it's the oracle obviously, followed immediately by the inmost cave as now stripped of both mentor and purpose, he must decide to rescue Morpheus. Mm -hmm. So the inmost cave is where you go down to basically face the dragon. Yeah. Um, there's also another part to the meeting with the goddess, which is listed as the woman or material world as temptress. Now, <laughs> Neo doesn't actually go through this, but Cypher does. He is tempted by the desire to go back into the Matrix. It's kind of an echo of the refusal of the call. It's, it's another chance to go back, but yeah. yeah. This is Cypher too is an hard. Yeah. So, and that's, you said this about red pills. They think they're Neo, mm -hmm. or even if they're teaching other red pills, they think they're Morpheus. Mm. They're just Cypher. They're Cypher, yeah. They're stuck. And the, uh, the element of this that in the hero's journey you're supposed to go through and then come out the other side is to be able to push that need mm. for the physical away. And they've transmuted that into push women away. <laughs> it's symbolic, guys. It's a metaphor. The, what you said before about the only thing that worth knowing is that we know nothing, that's a really healthy philosophy. Not we literally know nothing, but I know a ton of shit. It's still on balance about nothing percent of Absolutely. the everything. Absolutely. It's important, very important to have humility walking forwards. Indeed. There is more stuff in the world than you could ever fit into your brain. That's what Shakespeare said. He did. He keep talking in about those past. exact terms. Yeah. Number eight, the ordeal could be the whole third act or it could be Neo's real struggle when he comes face to face with Smith. Mm -hmm. And this is also known as the atonement with the father. Very specifically, it's the confrontation of the God figure. Mm -hmm. And the way I read it is this whole section begins with uh, Morpheus's kidnap and Tank coming to the conclusion that they've got to kill him and referring to Morpheus as their father, mm. that triggers off this section, mm -hmm. and it continues then until Neo has his confrontation with Smith, who is his negative father figure, who yeah. has been directly linked with his boss at the beginning. Yeah. And his place of work. The reward of pulling this off is number nine, and being able to temporarily defeat Smith that's like a major achievement at the time. Even though he comes back straight away, it's like, well, we, he did it. He actually beat him in a straight-up fight. Smith lost that one, so Neo has to run, but there's still that sense of, I did it. But most specifically, he self-actualizes during this fight. More on that in just a second. Absolutely, and also it's worth noting that in defeating Smith, he is defeating an aspect of himself. Smith's jacket is lined with yellow satin. We didn't notice that till watching it last night in 4K. Absolutely, and in the scene where Neo is at work and gets the phone call, his jacket is lined with yellow satin. Yeah. And actually, if you look at Neo's suit at work, it's closer to the slightly yellowish black that the uh, agents wear. Mm -hmm. It's not pure black. I think um, the, it's pure black during the, were well, you looking at the woman in the red dress scene? But in almost every other scene, Smith's suit is very, 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 very dark brown. Possibly because of the uh, the green filter being applied all the mm. time as well. It leaches the, so, the, yeah. the red out of the mix is, that is black. It's difficult to apply colour theory accurately when they keep shifting the tints. Yes. But it would appear that 
like it's a very straightforward green equals machines blue equals the real world which also equates to coldness mm -hmm. and a certain level of despair and red equals threat threat danger yeah, which i mean that's that's gut reaction you see red even in the wild natural mm. world red is not good woman in the red dress oh look at that and now you got a gun pointed at your head oh look what color are the squiddy's eyes red red those are also a really excellent redesign of the Sentinels from uh, uh, X Men. Just the idea that rather than these great big, like bipedal robots, they're just they're more insectoid and arachnid in nature, and and, and yeah, squid like. Uh, number ten is his road back as he's chased by agents. Number eleven is his death and rebirth, fully defeating Smith in the process. And number twelve, his return to the uncomfortable world with the elixir of now being able to do anything. But those 12 stages are spread across an amazingly efficient three-act structure and a pace that makes two hours and 16 minutes just fly by. Act 1 establishes a ton of questions, and yet on repeat viewings it doesn't irritate me the way that Inception does with its preoccupation with establishing the mechanics of dream invasion. In The Matrix, Act 1 is all about delivering strong character archetypes, and what they lack in human flavour, they more than make up for with memorable imagery and a very quotable script. Like, as we were watching The Matrix, and we were just mouthing along to the words because it just burned into my brain. Act 2, with the big reveal of what The Matrix actually is, now established, spends much of its time not only answering the questions of Act 1, but tying your brain up in knots with philosophical quandaries that make it stand out from not only 99% of action films, but a hell of a lot of sci-fi movies up to that point. Many of them dealt with one or maybe two concepts, like Blade Runner deals with a couple of concepts. Mm. But Terminator. The, yeah, but it seems like The Matrix was determined to be a philosophy 101 for a generation. Like, he, they, Neo is hanging around with philosophy students. Most of all, though, the big question is, is Neo the one? Which he has to be, look, because his name is an anagram of one. You noticed that, huh? I did. I remember that from back at the... Uh, <laughs> The, the the message boards of the what is the matrix .com was like, dude, I just worked out N E O O N E Mind blown dude. Whoa. Look, it was a different time. We were sweet people. We were. <laughs> sweet summer children. Yep. Act three, with the reversal reveal at the end of Act Two, and Neo now sure he's not the one, which of course means he genuinely isn't, because he has to know he is the one. We get a series of action sequences that pay off the very talky first two acts in the best way possible, layering amazing moment after amazing moment, and all of it in keeping with the key themes and premises which have been so painstakingly established. Now, as I've said before, Marvel have been criticised in the past for having weak endings with robot fights. In actuality, most of them do in fact follow up on the core themes within that conflict, but usually in less spectacular, sustained and escalating fashion than The Matrix. And because in most of the Marvel movies there's been quite a bit of action already with like a mid-movie set piece, people have begun to get a little tired of pre-visualised CG smash-ups. But because The Matrix saves all of its big guns for the end, keeps everything varied, never lets any outstay their welcome. Compare that with the end of Age of Ultron, where it's like, I'm going to fight these robots over here, and then this Avenger's going to fight these robots over here, and then this Avenger's going to fight these robots over here. They're going to rescue people from cars, they're going to rescue people from buildings, they're going to fire arrows. It's I, I love Avengers Age of Ultron, but none of the action sequences in that film stand out the way that these do. And it executes every single one of these with serious purpose. It has an escalating sense of awe threaded through. Okay, 
to list the bits, the sections. First says the tension as Trinity and Tank prepare to sever the link to Morpheus, someone we the audience really do not want to see go, though we are also made very aware that if they don't remove him from play, the fabled and as yet unseen last hope of Zion is scuppered. Number two, Trinity's decision is clinical, mechanical, just kill Morpheus, cut off the source. Neo's is human and compassionate, again weirdly at odds with the fact that they're about to coldly murder several men. He decides to save what they love. Save what we love. And destroy what they hate. Number three, the guns, lots of guns moment, establishes the extent of their hacking skill and gives us the beginnings of an understanding as to how they might pull off this deadly heist. It's the Terminator 2 hidden cachet in Mexico. That's definitely you. But within a video game. It's worth noting, by the way, that although Trinity's initial agreement with Tank that they need to kill Morpheus, when Neo makes it very clear he's going back in to get him, she is right up there. And she gets her best line. Oh, as in the, you know, she's going with him. And and Neo says no, because he doesn't want her to get hurt. Mm. And she says... No. Let me tell you what I believe. I believe Morpheus means more to me than he does to you. I believe if you are really serious about saving him, you are going to need my help. And since I am the ranking officer on this ship, if you don't like it, I believe you can go to hell. Because you aren't going anywhere else. Tank, load us up. Number four, Agent Smith delivers his lengthy and venomous speech to Morpheus, hinting that this somewhat corrupt old program may be becoming a little too human. Because hate, because hate for the Matrix itself and the utter contempt for humans that he's exhibiting is a quintessentially bitter and exhausted response that standard machines should not have. He grips Morpheus so hard and growls so fiercely that our attention is on a knife edge, which sets us up expertly for number five, the lobby sequence. Back up! Stand back up! I've already described it, and while it has bone-chilling real-world reflections and ripples of worrying influence, the sequence itself, in context, and in 1999, was breathtaking. Number six, the rooftop antics that, as I said earlier, are just brilliantly framed by Bill Pope, making for a frantic minute of exceptional abilities and iconic moments. Then, Neo has uh, even that little bit of comedy of... That's a really nice moment of, oh, you you may not be the one and you may be kick-ass, but uh, you're going to need help. And that makes her point of, like, without her right there, he really would have been dead. This is not a one-man job. Number seven, then Neo has what in video games would be the turret section, usually the most boring part of any action game because all of your manoeuvring and taking cover is taken away and you're just moving across hairs around in a screen. But here, it's just deeply satisfying to watch a room full of agents and glass get tore up in slow motion. Agents, kill as many of them as you want. No problemo. Even though they are technically in the bodies of regular dudes, if you think Mm. about it. Yeah. Yeah. 
There's also that we may have a problem, and then the um, sprinkler systems go off, and the, and the agents all in unison kind of look up in this dignity-removed way. <laughs> I mean, it's weird. The Wachowskis don't really handle humor well that I've seen. But The Matrix has some funny moments, some well-timed moments. They have, from, from what I can see, they have a very particular deadpan style of humour mm. which works sparingly and in very particular moments yeah they, they, they do humour better than M. Night Shyamalan at least oh hells yes <laughs> hells yes so the uh, turret section is followed by an achingly slow and tense escape and run across the room. The sprinklers being on makes for beautiful imagery as Morpheus trusts the man that he was just asking to be trusted by. That hold between these two men as they fly across the city is truly exhilarating and highlights that the power dynamic is changing. Number nine, not content with just landing the helicopter, the Wachowskis and their team fling the gunship into a building and have Trinity get herself out just in time. Her quick action ensures that this rescue is once again a two-hander with Neo. She's never a helpless damsel. They're working together to accomplish spectacular miracles. Number 10, our trio reach the safety of a phone, but it is destroyed, leaving Neo to run for his life. But he chooses to stand his ground and fight attempting to accomplish the impossible. We know that anyone who attempts to fight an agent has died. We've seen Morpheus badly beaten, and this fight is one of the most memorable and carefully crafted in Western cinema even to this day. Two actors who a few months earlier were no good at all at fighting are utterly convincing as punch and kick machines. Again, this is a high-speed video game feel to it, like the greatest Tekken match ever, utilizing the surroundings to painful, thrilling effect. 11. To cap it off when Smith has seemingly won and holds his opponent down in a violent reminder of their oppressive first meeting where he outlined Anderson's two identities, Thomas gets to shed his captive name and officially christen himself as Neo in an act of defiance that breaks the stranglehold and that sees his captor crushed by an oncoming train. Number 12, we get then one of the greatest foot chases ever, made possible by the simple but effective mechanic of the agents being able to jump between bodies. They don't even have to run, there just need to be people nearby. Number 13, the... Number 13, then Neo loses, big time, just as the squiddies bust in on the real world. A strangely believable all-is-lost moment, even if you've seen the film a hundred times, this stretching of what is possible has finally run out. Number 14, Trinity, a woman who has eliminated emotion, finally shows it to the fallen hero in a scene that some might reject as a little too much, some might adore for how it makes them feel, and a scene that serves the story as a princess kissing a prince back to life, whilst reminding him that because of her love, it stands to factual reason that he must be the one. A fusion of emotion and logic that hints at a possible future balance for the series and one that most people missed. Mm, yeah. The the significance of the phrase the one to a girl is pretty sizable. Yeah. And number 15, Neo gets to return and utterly obliterate his enemy who impotently tries to punch him at super speed only to find he is up against something impossible. Then Smith turns inside out. And, and he exploded. exploded. Freeing Neo, causing the remaining agents to run for the hills in a moment of, oh yeah, 
that comedy and bringing us back to the real world where the painstakingly established EMP, electromagnetic pulse, finally gets employed to leave everything neutral in darkness and only love and friends remaining. And 16, after that, Neo makes a pledge to the machines that he will show people a world without boundaries or borders, a world where anything is possible. And then he flies to prove it. Superman is here, and we all get to feel less trapped. But how would you interpret those final words? Because it may not be as simple as the first or easiest reading. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. It did seem to me this time to be a little bit conflicted because the world that Morpheus is trying to bring about is one with enforced boundaries, is physical, is real, is where everybody is limited by their own flesh. Morpheus wants to get everybody out of the Matrix. Yeah. And that is not a world where anything is possible. I'm tired of this war. Tired of fighting, tired of this ship, being cold, beating the same goddamn goop every day. So what Neo's saying is actually something beyond that. Yeah. Now, same as Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone was kind of a macrocosm for the whole Harry Potter adventure, that he kind of ends in the same way here, that he ends the whole series. The original Matrix is basically the trilogy in one film. Or the, the trilogy together, or an elaboration on that first film. Uh, and it's all about giving the finger to restrictive authority. They wouldn't have ended on Rage Against the Machine unless it was... And that would change for the sequels. And I remember thinking when I was 23, Jesus, they've been told to fall into line by the studio. They're no longer allowed to be rebels. They now have to tell you... No, no, no. Some systems are important. And I remember being crushed. I was desperately angry and disappointed by how it ended. Over time, it's grown a lot more complex in my head. And like I said, there's elements of those sequels that are actually healthier than some of the core philosophies of this film. It would seem that the red pills are very much intent on focusing on the waking up bit of The Matrix and ignoring everything about the sequels to whom, for many people, the sequels don't exist. And that doesn't mean you're a red pill, by the way. It just means you didn't like him because they were crappy. And finally, this was a clarion call to superheroes. This was the signifier, hey, all of that comic action that they've been kind of unable to do for a, a century of cinema, well, in 1999, now we can do it. Now we can do comic book superheroes and... Within a year, X-Men was out, and Blade had already come out, and uh, Spider-Man was on the way, and so was the Hulk and Daredevil, and it just spiralled out from there. And it took another nine years to actually get Iron Man out, and to actually start it in what I consider earnest. Everything up until Iron Man was just a tryout, was just sort of like, can we get this done? Though the Spider-Man trilogy were the models for what a superhero blockbuster could be. They were kind of the best examples of them. But The Matrix was the one that actually said, superheroes, yes, now we have the technology. And it wasn't just Neo's a bit like a superhero. He's goddamn Superman at the end. He flies off, but he's a Superman who's going to change the world in a very concerted way. 
And the overall feeling that I get when when watching this is there's there's some troublesome stuff still in there, but I was bowled over by how tight the whole film remains and and how accomplished the craft is. And while again it's a little bit mechanical, a little bit uh, inhuman in the way the interactions go on, and there's a uh, a very definite kind of it's almost like the um, crew themselves are programs deliberating their own existence and it doesn't have what the Marvel movies would later have which is very much a human touch but much like James Cameron's Terminator films the first Matrix in particular is a key link in the chain of sci-fi influence and I don't think I can really credit the Wachowskis enough with being able to just like slap me in the face shake me and wake me up and make me feel more like I needed to look at the world rather than just bouncing through it, bumping into things. It both energized and stilled me, conversely, and it got my brain really working. Almost done. Just time to say a little thank you to some of my favourites. Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Benjamin Biddle, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Bornett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, James Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. All of you good people make us feel right as rain. to give you one last thing to think about. Cypher. God damn you, Cypher! Don't hate me, Trinity. I'm just a messenger. Cypher as the shadow. He's the path not travelled for Mm. Neo. Takes the option that Neo didn't. Now just consider the parallels between Cypher and our red pills. You know... A long time. Angry, resentful, and mistrustful of women. I thought I was in love with you. Stuck in a cycle. I used to dream about you. Unable to connect. You're a beautiful woman, Trinity. Too bad things have to turn out this way. I bet you never saw this coming. Did you? No, we didn't. God, I wish I could be there. And they break you. I wish I could walk in just when it happens. Because it's all about me. So right then... No, it was me. You gave them Morpheus. He lied to us, Trinity. These boys should inspire pity. He tricked us. Rolling on the hands as master tricksters. <laughs> of course he did. Fragile men manipulated by hateful men. I hate this place. I told you he was.
was Trixie. They don't want our pity. I told you he was false. Save your pity for the weak. Strength is never admitting when you need help. If you would have told us the truth, we would have told you to shove that red pill right up your ass. And it's not true, Cypher. He set us free. Free. You call this free? All I do is what he tells me to do. If I had to choose between that and the Matrix, I'd choose the Matrix. The Matrix isn't real. I disagree, Trinity. I think the Matrix can be more real than this world. I am now awake to how reality is bullshit, so I will now redefine my reality. I'm going to need some angry men to tell me how things really are. Do we have a deal, Mr. Reagan? Welcome to the real world, huh, baby? Welcome to the real world, jackass! I mean, how can he be the one if he's dead? They put all their faith in one person, concept, god, movie series. They find inevitably that this thing is flawed, and in their eyes it fails them. And their response is the desire to destroy that thing utterly. No! I don't believe it. Believe it or not, you piece of shit, you're still gonna burn. But burning is not the answer. Boys have always been vulnerable. And when they start acting like colossal pricks, they find fewer and fewer people who really care about them to steer them right. So it's a vicious series of circles. Loneliness, hope, disappointment, anger, hatred, deeper loneliness. But in 1999, we didn't anticipate this future. Not like this. Not like this. A future where they could join tails like a rat king and form a shitstorm of seething resentment. Our civilization collectively epic failed as we hit the information age. Now we have to make things better for everyone. Where we go from there is a choice I leave to you. So I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out.
Squashing Soul! 